Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Agent Smith. This one is podcast material using the Zencaster stuff. It is Sunday, September the 15th, and we are ready to discuss the goings-on in the world, things such as the shitstorm that is Brexit, and we discussed last week, and we barely just scratched the surface of this massive iceberg of a hot mess of things that weren't supposed to happen and are making no progress in any productive direction. But what else has been going on in the world, Mr. Agent Smith? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Was there anything that caught your eye in particular? Yeah, my busy work schedule. It actually caught both my eyes for the whole week. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been locked down then? Yeah, I have. It's been pretty much wake up, do business stuff before stream, turn on stream, and it's full on. And then we have TwitchCon next weekend, which will be pretty fun. But yeah, I feel like I'm... I'm definitely getting back up to speed in terms of hours of uptime with the broadcasting, so that feels good. And I'm experiencing the Pacific Northwest fall again, which is fun. It's a very different climate up here than it is in Texas where you live and I used to live. So it went from being around 75 or so degrees at the high on average to now it's in the 50s for most of the day. It's kind of cool and rainy as well, but yeah. I'm enjoying it. It's a nice change of pace. Yeah, that sounds relaxing. Mm-hmm. It is, especially if you don't have to commute or go outside. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I've got uh, a fair amount of stuff, not not a, not as much as the past couple weeks, but do you want the most recent things first, or do you want the uh, things that I haven't gotten to yet from previous weeks first? Uh, I think if we do it chronologically, that might be good. So the the stuff that we didn't get to cover yet, and then we can hit the current events. Fair enough. We'll do recent events into current events. And Fuzzy Cord is on deck for questions. Oh, thank you, Fuzzy Cord. <clears throat> well, do you remember Kashmir? Mm-hmm. So that was in the news. Did you see anything about that by chance? No. Okay. What happened? So Kashmir, uh, well, for those of you listening who maybe aren't familiar with Kashmir, Kashmir is uh, the northernmost state in India, and it's uh, been contested for, I want to say, 70-some years now. Basically, the territorial dispute over who owns Kashmir goes all the way back to India's independence from Britain. Um, Britain owned, basically, uh, South Asia and uh, what was called then British India. And uh, when it came time to give them their independence, there was a big debate about how it would be done, you know, what... Do we carve British India up into multiple countries based on ethnicity, uh, religion, uh, caste? I mean, there's lots of different ways they could have done it. Uh, The Indian National Congress, the principal pro-independence political force in South Asia, uh, advocated for British India becoming independent as a united and whole unit. Uh, Rather than being cut up into different countries, they wanted just one big independent British India that was united. Um, Long story short, 
for the most part that happened except for the Muslim parts of British India, which were carved out into a separate country called Pakistan, which still exists today, albeit without all of the territory it started with. Uh, one of the problems, though, with that is uh, the princely states. Um, while the British were okay with allowing India and Pakistan to become independent countries, um, the princely states in British India were pseudo-independent to begin with. Even under British rule, they were nominally autonomous territories that retained their uh, traditional Indian royal families and monarchies, albeit with a significant amount of oversight and direction from British officials. So the princely states were given the option of becoming independent, joining India, or joining Pakistan. And that created some drama in the first couple of years of India's independence, because uh, not every princely state was willing to join India or Pakistan, but neither India nor Pakistan were particularly eager to have independent statelets, in some cases, within their own territory. So they applied pressure on a number of princely states to join uh, one or the other. So Kashmir is a little bit awkward uh, because at that time, at the time of Indian independence, Kashmir was about 60% Muslim and 40% Hindu, but it was also a princely state. So at first, uh, the Raj of Kashmir, I, I think that's what he was called at the time, uh, he wanted to become independent. But Pakistan believed that being a Muslim-majority state, it should be part of Pakistan. So at first, Kashmir was nominally independent, and Pakistan technically respected that, but what happened was the Pakistani government clandestinely uh, funded a group of insurgents. Um, I think they were Pashtuns, Pashtun tribesmen, whom invaded Kashmir and were set to overthrow the government and then have it join uh, with Pakistan. So the Kashmiri Raj, um, with his defense forces unable to hold off the onslaught of uh, Pashtun irregulars, uh, requested the Indian government come to his aid. And the Indian government basically gave him the condition that he would have to join India, which was accepted. So Kashmir then technically became part of India at that point, and the Indian military, such as it was at the time, it was kind of early days, was able to stop uh, the invasion. And thereafter, there was a brief conflict between, I believe, not only the Pashtun irregulars, but also the Pakistani army. And eventually, there came to be a freeze in the fighting, which resulted in uh, the border stabilizing along what came to be called the line of control. Uh, between Pakistani-controlled Kashmir and Indian-controlled Kashmir. So things that kind of froze borders in place for a while. There, were, there was another couple conflicts over Kashmir fought over the course of the subsequent decades, but for the most part, the line of control hasn't changed too much since then. <clears throat> so what the Indian government did in recognition of the fact that Kashmir... Uh, the princely state had wanted to, that is to say, the prince wanted to join India, but his population was not entirely sure how it felt about that. At the time, 
I think uh, the sentiment was more or less apolitical, because most of the people in Kashmir then were relatively poor. I believe that to be the case. Um, but later on, in the early 1990s, there was an insurgency that broke out that wanted Kashmir to separate from India and join Pakistan. And I'll talk about a little bit about the reasons for that here in a minute. Uh, but one of the things that the Indian government did when Kashmir became a state was to grant it de facto, some de facto autonomy, more autonomy than regular Indian states had. And while that was meant to be relatively substantive at the start, in the, in the late 1940s, over time it got watered down uh, to the point where Kashmir today, well, up until recently anyway, uh, had powers that were pretty much the same as any other Indian state. And the reason they did that is because they didn't want Kashmir, well, they wanted to run Kashmir in a very particular way. One of the things they were concerned about was uh, the Pakistanis uh, trying to infiltrate again with irregulars or using some other unconventional style of warfare to potentially cause a rebellion or uh, some other problems in Kashmir. And uh, in order to ensure that the local governance reflected the preferences of the Indian government above and beyond those of the locals, uh, a number of governments in the state of Kashmir were de facto appointed. So sometimes there would be a local party that was elected, but the national government didn't get along with them. And so eventually they would just sort of uh, finagle the local elections one way or the other and get their preferred party in, or preferred guy in, as the case may be. So, in effect, Kashmir was more or less de facto directly controlled by the Indian government, but technically it was supposed to be autonomous on paper. But again, over time, that became less and less true. So, what happened recently was that that autonomy was removed. Uh, Article 370 of the Indian Constitution is what it was, technically. Um, but that was kind of a technical move. The headline you read in the news is that uh, the autonomy was lost and that this was supposed to be a significant change. But actually, given that uh, those autonomous powers had been watered down over time and that the Indian government had not really allowed Kashmir to have self-governance over the past 50 to 60 years, um, removing the autonomy wasn't really that substantive. Um, Really, it, was a, it had to do with something else that they wanted to do, another technical change. So one aspect of Article 370 is that uh, changes vis-a-vis -vis Kashmir's legal status cannot be made without the uh, consent of Kashmir's government. And so in order to do what they wanted to do, um, they would need to get Kashmir's, gov Kashmir's government's uh, consent, which they would most likely not give uh, if the uh, government was reflecting the will of the broader voting public in Kashmir. Uh, so what they did is they, quote-unquote, reinterpreted that rule uh, to mean that uh, the governor of Kashmir could be the representative of the Kashmir government and could give consent for changes that the Indian government wanted to make. And the reason that's significant is because the governor in Indian states is appointed by the national government. Uh, generally, there's sort of a balance of power between uh, the governor and the elected parliament and prime minute, local prime minister in given states. But in the case of Kashmir, 
Um, that balance doesn't really exist. So the Indian government was able to make uh, the bigger change that it wanted to make by making this earlier change, which involved scrapping Article 370 and reinterpreting that rule. And the bigger change that they wanted to make is to turn Kashmir into a union territory. And so what that means is that uh, basically, to use a U.S. frame of reference, uh, Kashmir went from being a state to being a territory, like Puerto Rico or the Northern Mariana Islands. So that's a rough corollary that uh, should be familiar to most Americans, I think. If I uh, could expand on that uh, corollary in comparison, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it seems like if you're a territory, you have more autonomy, but you also have fewer benefits that mm -hmm. you would get if you were a state. Yeah. So it, it could be a bad deal depending on how that works out. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's probably going to be negative. Um, it's not entirely clear just what the government plans to do. Uh, well, just to clarify that, I mean, by making Kashmir a union territory, the national government has a lot more direct power over governance in Kashmir. Previously, they had to kind of work through um, corrupt, appointed, pliant local governments. But officially, there was still nominally self-governance in Kashmir. This, With this method, by turning Kashmir into a union territory, uh, they have a lot more wiggle room. They have a lot more room to maneuver in terms of uh, imposing changes on Kashmir and its legal system. So, again, it's not entirely clear just what they want to do uh, with that power. Currently, the government in power uh, is uh, the BJP, and it's led by a guy named Narendra Modi, and they're known for being fairly conservative. And, uh, that, well, that's probably putting it mildly, uh, if you ask their critics. But uh, their whole bag has been more to embrace Hinduism and Hindu identity and to kind of move away from the traditionally secular notions of government that has defined India's political culture since independence. And that's kind of a problem if you're a Muslim-majority state like Kashmir. Now, there's more to it than that. There's also the insurgency I mentioned. A lot of people in Kashmir uh, over the past 50, 70 years have gotten tired of the uh, martial law in the state. There's emergency powers that have been granted to the Indian military in Kashmir owing to its sensitive status. And a lot of people got tired of that and eventually, with probably with Pakistani support, revolted in the early 90s. And there's been a off and on insurgency in Kashmir against the Indian government ever since. And so there's a sense on the part of the Indian government that the status quo was not working. Because uh, on the one hand, giving them more autonomy and more room to kind of define their own laws and whatnot, uh, that helped give the Kashmir government and Indian government more legitimacy. But at the same time, the Indian government did not want to do what the locals really wanted, which was to remove the Indian military, or at least reduce its presence and remove the emergency powers that they had there. Uh, so that being the case, that kind of mitigated potential gains from having autonomy and uh, wasn't really doing anything to stem the uh, political violence in Kashmir, if not outright militancy. So the government's argument is probably that uh, they needed to make a change in order to try to boost economic development in Kashmir, um, which they argue is about the only thing that can really change facts on the ground. You know, they want to uh, 
inculcate economic growth in order to try to build the government's legitimacy and to try to minimize the attractiveness of militancy. So nominally, on paper, that's, that's what they're arguing. But some people are suspicious that actually what they want to do is change the demographics in Kashmir. So that's the more controversial angle. Uh, Kashmir is where the headwaters of the Ganges River are. And the Ganges is a very significant, it, ha, play, it has a very significant uh, role in Hinduism. It's a holy river for many Hindus. And so uh, they don't want to give up Kashmir, partly just for that reason. Uh, but more to the point, uh, they think that maybe they can secure Kashmir for the long term uh, if they can open up opportunities for people to migrate to Kashmir. Uh, from outside, and maybe that can change the demographics a little. That's speculation. That's not a that's not established fact, but that's the suspicion on the part of some. Um, now, the reason people suspect that is because one of the rules that was in place in Kashmir before were uh, restrictions on the ability of people outside the state to move into the state and to buy property in the state, and the idea was that protected the state uh, from an influx of migrants that might change the culture. Uh, disrupt local economies, uh, whatnot. <clears throat> now, this was not actually, um, these rules that were implemented in Kashmir were not actually implemented uh, using those autonomous provisions, the provisions in that Article 370 that gave them autonomy. Uh, apparently, a lot of Indian states have very similar powers, uh, which kind of surprised me. Uh, but by turning Kashmir into a union, territory, the government could hypothetically remove those restrictions and facilitate an influx of uh, new people, new migrants who could come in. And over time, that could facilitate a change in the demography of the state so that it's not majority Muslim. Um, some interesting trivia about Kashmir. It's technically Kashmir and Jammu. That's the actual name. And Jammu is a southwestern part of the territory that's actually majority Hindu. I said before, it's 60% Muslim and 40% roughly uh, Hindu. The Hindus are actually heavily concentrated in the southwest and the Jammu territory, and the Muslims kind of predominate in the other parts of Kashmir. So they're the ones who the Indian government are kind of concerned about, the Muslim part of the population, since they're the ones who have been most attracted to militancy and insurgency. Uh, the Hindus in Jammu, in contrast, haven't been as much of a problem, and they're quite pleased with this new change. Uh, they, they don't have a problem with it. There's actually another territory in Kashmir called Ladakh, I think it was, and it's mostly Buddhist, and that got broken off into a separate union territory. So not only is Kashmir, has Kashmir been made a union territory, it's actually been split up uh, into Kashmir, Jammu, and Ladakh the newest Union territory. Ladakh isn't very big. I mean, it's basically just a city. It's not unusual uh, for there to be cities or city-sized territories that have Union status in India. So Ladakh has basically just become that. I'm not sure exactly why Ladakh uh, was specified for that, uh, but that is one of the changes that they made. So some of the motive, potential motives here, besides um, you know, potentially changing demographics and uh, inculcating economic growth, some of it is just pandering uh, to a political base. Again, the Modi government is very conservative. 
And uh, Kashmir is an emotive issue for Hindu nationalists, again, because of the significance of the Ganges and the Ganges headwaters, uh, but also just pure from a pure nationalist perspective, uh, retaining Kashmir is an important objective and goal for Indian nationalists. Uh, so this is sort of red meat for them, so to speak. And uh, one of the reasons that it happened now is because the Modi government just won an election and actually won it by relatively good margin. They did surprisingly well. And so that, that's given them more room to maneuver in which on, with which to deliver on certain political promises, such as uh, trying to address the Kashmir issue. Let's see. Also, there, it could just partly be corruption and by opening up the Kashmir territory to economic development, if that is what they're going to do. Uh, there's going to be lots of opportunities for patronage uh, in so much as infrastructure projects and government spending will provide opportunities for insiders uh, to sell basically government contracts. There's a fair amount of corruption in India's political culture. So uh, I don't think that's the sole reason they did it, but it could be a motivating factor that could uh, generate a fair amount of political capital uh, for Modi and the BJP if they play their cards right. One thing that we've discussed quite a bit over the course of these discussions is corruption as a cultural norm, where in certain places in the world, it's just standard practice to just pay someone to do stuff for you just directly, even if it's for selfish reasons. And there aren't quite as many eyebrows that are raised if it's something that everybody does. And the fun story that I had was in a uh, Pretty, pretty low level stuff, nothing like high level political corruption, but we visited Egypt and our tour guide for the trip, he's a local and he takes people around sometimes and we, he, he just paid one of the guards of one of the pyramids to turn his back so that we could climb it. <laughs> You're not supposed to climb it and it's his job to stop people from climbing it unless they give him $40. <laughs> That's pretty normal there. They're old rocks. He's like, whatever. We didn't mess up anything. Just wanted to get a little bit of exercise, you know? Well, nothing wrong with that. I could, I could probably do for some myself. <laughs> yeah, the 60-40, I think, makes it pretty hard for the region to kind of make a ton of progress in any direction. Yeah. It kind of... It's not quite 50-50 like Brexit, but it's neighborhood. And it seems like there tends to be quite a bit of friction uh, between religious demographics pretty often. So is it just religious demographics that are the main pulls here, or is it also ethnic demographics as well? Because I'm not quite as familiar with the uh, different ethnicities within India. I think for people in the U.S., you think Indian is Indian, but it's a billion people, and there are lots of different uh, types of people within the country. Yeah. I'm not that familiar with ethnic differences within Kashmir. I've been under the impression that it's relatively ethnically homogenous. So I think it is more uh, sectarian, so to speak, more of a religious conflict in nature. But again, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it really has to do with tensions between Hindus and Muslims per se. 
you know, that is an aspect of the conflict in Kashmir. Uh, but really, the two more important driving factors in Kashmir are one, the dispute between the Indian government and the Pakistani government over who controls the territory. That's been a running sore in Indo-Pakistani relations since independence, and again has been the principal reason for the number of wars that were fought uh, between India and Pakistan in the late 20th century. So that's one motivating factor for the conflict. The other one is local tension uh, between civilians and the Indian military. The Indian military has a massive presence in Kashmir. Understandable given the history of war, wars with uh, Pakistan, but having such a huge military presence there and giving them a, basically allowing them to impose martial law uh, such that there's lots of opportunities to abuse civilians and engage in uh, excessive violence in the pursuit of tackling insurgents. You know, counterinsurgency is messy in the best of circumstances. Now, those factors have driven a lot of friction with locals. Again, the population was relatively apolitical vis-a-vis Kashmir -vis, uh, status up until the early 90s, late 80s, roughly around there. Um, before that, there was a desire for self-governance and some skepticism of Indian rule, but the broader part of the population did not necessarily revolt uh, and engage in open insurgency like they have been doing since the late 80s. <clears throat> so that tension generated by the Indian military, that's really what drove the modern insurgency, and it continues to do so and continues to really poison relations uh, between Kashmiris, or at least Muslim Kashmiris, and the Indian government. So those are sort of uh, the more important drivers, rather than ethnic conflict or sectarian conflict. It's more local politics and uh, territorial dispute. I would say that's a more thorough uh, characterization of the conflict in Kashmir. But to be fair, again, you know, there is that uh, there is that sectarian angle. I think I can't remember which one of the uh, Indo-Pak wars involving Kashmir in which this happened. But in one of them, it, maybe it was the first one. Uh, but in one of them, the Muslim population in Kashmir basically expelled its Hindu population. The Hindus and Muslims in Kashmir had been relatively mixed, but during one of the Indo-Pak wars. Uh, or maybe it was the insurgents. I'm not sure exactly, but at some point the Hindu population of uh, Kashmir, or at least the Muslim majority part of Kashmir, were expelled. And uh, I think most of them ended up either in Jammu or in other parts of India. Uh, but again, I don't think there was some underlying tension there that really drove uh, that uh, with the Hindus. I think it was more just a manifestation of tensions with the Indian government and uh, corresponding local nationalism, uh, which incorporates Islam as part of its notion of uh, national identity, or at least uh, local identity. Basically, if not for the uh, territorial dispute and corresponding tensions, it probably wouldn't have happened. That is to say, the expulsion of the Hindus in Kashmir, there wouldn't have really been that same impetus so that just sort of illustrates that conflicts tend to have uh, different, you know, conflicts that look like prototypical ethnic conflicts. They can have different drivers, uh, overarching drivers that tie into regional politics 
uh, if not also just meat and potatoes political issues. You know, we currently have a, a lot of tension in the United States vis-a-vis -vis police violence, and that ties into uh, ethnic tension, you know, what, or at least what we would call racial tension in the United States. Uh, so that's, that kind of illustrates that tie-in there. They're not mutually exclusive, but it's not just one or the other. So in Kashmir, similarly, um, there is some tension between locals of different backgrounds, but there's, some, there's other factors that drive it. And in Kashmir's case, those other factors, I argue, would be the more important. A little bit all over the place tonight. I'm sorry if this isn't entirely coherent. <laughs> It makes sense to me. I mean, it's there's a lot of stuff going on there. And the refreshing part, I think, about learning about world news as opposed to local news is a lot of problems are similar in their type. Like, it's not exactly the same problems that we have here. But uh, I think for the purpose of mental efficiency, a lot of times humans will reduce the complexity of outside groups. They'll kind of simplify them in a way that uh, it costs you less to think about it, but the flip side is this is 2019 now and we have more time to think about the world just in the comfort of our own chairs and stuff. So seeing that depth of these sorts of areas and the complexity where it's not really just a simple problem that has a simple solution. It's a long story of tension and different interests and things like this, and it's all kind of a developing a drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the latest chapter in uh, the conflict over Kashmir. Yeah, the joke, been... the joke one that we have of this show that people ask about not knowing the depth of some of these issues is like, what's going on in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? <laughs> Where do you want to start? Yeah, that's that's a loaded question, if ever there was one. Well, yeah, it's in Kashmir's case, this is just the latest chapter in the conflict there. You know, I don't know if um, you remember, but we talked a while back about airstrikes. You know, India and Pakistan traded airstrikes uh, having to do with, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but somebody did something they weren't supposed to, and that led to a tit-for-tat exchange of airstrikes, which then ended very quickly in nuclear powers um, attacking each other with airstrikes is a pretty risky move in the best of circumstances. So that ended up de-escalating pretty quickly. But that happened in and around Kashmir. That's just sort of where uh, the tension between Pakistan and India is highest, and that's where they're mostly, that's where they're really focused, and they're really dialed in there. Yeah, the Pakistani, the Indo-Pakistani border kind of looks bigger than it is. Um, maybe that's not the best way to put that, but there's a desert called the Thar Desert. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But that desert actually takes up most of the border region between India and Pakistan. So the part of the border that actually has people in it is mostly around Punjab and Kashmir, and that's more the northern part of that Indo-Pak border. So that's where the tensions and the fighting happen generally you know in the indo-pak wars that's where the fighting was more concentrated except for 71 since that was more that was all about bangladesh you know, for those not familiar with bangladesh um bangladesh 
was originally known as East Pakistan, and it was originally part of Pakistan. It was, uh, again, the Muslim parts of India were largely carved out into an independent Muslim nation. And that ended up being what we now call Pakistan, but also what we now call Bangladesh. Both of those were a single Pakistan immediately after independence. But there was a lot of, long story short, there was a lot of tension between them. And eventually uh, the Bengalis kind of tried for independence. It was more that the Pakistani government suspected that they were trying for independence. And that led them uh, to institute a massive crackdown in Bangladesh. And there was a lot of violence committed against civilians and then they actually did start to push for independence. There was a rebellion, and then the Indian government intervened for quote-unquote humanitarian reasons, end quote. So some of that was humanitarianism, but probably it was also a strategic move to deny Pakistan some of its territory. It was successful. You know, Bangladesh is an independent country now because of that, but that's just to illustrate that not every Indo-Pak war has been fought over Kashmir. In 71, most of the fighting was in and around Bangladesh. Kind of a random tangent. Um, <laughs> before I meander further... of random tangents and meandering, Agent Smith tackles Kashmir in Bangladesh. Well, one of the interesting things about um, this current issue... Uh, the way it played out, the Indian government was actually really sneaky about it. Um, they actually started asking uh, tourists to leave Kashmir before they made this announcement uh, because they anticipated a lot of negative reaction on the part of the locals. And so they, they actually went out of their way to deploy additional troops there, get the tourists out of Kashmir, what few there were, and uh, they shut down internet access in Kashmir. And they justified it at the time by saying that there was, it was just a normal security operation. They had some intelligence about a potential attack, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, when I read that a couple weeks ago, you know, my thinking was, okay, well, nothing to see here. That's not entirely unusual. Um, normally, it's a little, it was a little unusual in the scale, but I kind of didn't think anything about it. So I think that was just the Indian government's way of kind of very sneakily getting in position to try to clamp down as much as possible in anticipation of a backlash. And so they did a pretty good job about that. I was, everybody was very surprised when they announced that they were going to strip Kashmir of its autonomy uh, in order to, again, just make it a union state. Making it a union territory is the more important change. The fact that autonomy was stripped was more of a legal maneuver than anything. So let's see. So that was uh, some interesting tactics there, political tactics on the part of the Indian government to kind of do that. And uh, they've been, I think, up until maybe just this past week or two, that media shut the media shutdown, not just the uh, internet, but also a media shutdown in Kashmir, had basically continued more or less unabated. It's kind of starting to let they're starting to weaken their grip a little bit now. Uh, because they think maybe the worst of the uh, potential violence is kind of passed. Enough time has passed, they think, that maybe people won't be as uh, militant about it. But that's something to watch for, basically. That's uh, how the local Kashmiris respond to the change in their legal status. Um, less self-governance is generally not a vote winner. So I would imagine that they're pretty upset. But it's not really clear just what exactly they're going to do. 
or for that matter, what they really can do at this point. But something to keep an eye on. We could be seeing Kashmir in the headlines again soon if there is a, an, ex, an especially violent backlash. There's also questions uh, about, the re, about regional security. Hypothetically, the Pakistani government uh, could respond by escalating its support for insurgents in Kashmir, which would really test relations with India, which are already not great. Uh, but I don't actually think that they will. The Pakistani government has come out and said, uh, you know, basically shit-talked India, <laughs> basically saying that they were uh, going against the will of the public in Kashmir and that their occupation of Kashmir was illegal and that they were going to bring it, the world's attention to what they were doing there. But they didn't actually do anything, at least from what I saw. And uh, I don't know that they really have a lot of incentive. Because really, for Pakistan... Uh, what India, what the Indian government has done has not really changed the calculus for them. You know, for them, Kashmir is still occupied by India. Pakistan still claims it. But other than that, nothing really of substance has particularly changed. Uh, you could maybe argue that the Indian government has signaled by doing this that it's especially committed to staying in Kashmir and that... Uh, Kashmir being given to Pakistan such as it is, or even having a referendum over Kashmir status in Kashmir. None of that seems to be on the table given what the Indian government has done. I mention a referendum because uh, there was, after the war in Kashmir in 1948, I think it was, uh, there was a negotiated settlement which involved both parties technically agreeing to hold a referendum uh, in their respective uh, parts of India, Kashmir that they held in order to decide the territory status. And the, the Indian government has never carried that out and basically shows no sign of doing so, especially now. But that's been uh, something the Pakistani government harps on a lot when it comments on it. You know, you should allow the referendum so that the people of Kashmir can decide for themselves what their future should be. Sounds like a, a good little time for Brexit. Hmm. <laughs> Let the people decide. What if the people decide to tear each other apart? Should we let them vote on it? That's the interesting counterpoint to direct democracy, is the, the concept called tyranny of the masses. It's possible that the masses don't quite have the detailed understanding of the situation and if they just went with their gut feeling it would lead them astray which is kind of tough to grapple with as a citizen i think because people trust their own intuition the most usually and i think for evolutionary purposes it makes sense to do that we also do sometimes trust authority figures but really what what is a politician good at <laughs> Well, you know, that's one of the um, strengths of democracy, or at least a democratic political system. You know, not getting the, maintaining the government's legitimacy requires the government to do things that uh, are in the public's perceived interest and uh, dealing with issues in a way that suggests that they care about what the public thinks. And it requires a certain amount of, uh, ritual dancing, I guess, so to speak. You know, uh, 
basically what I'm saying is that if you have an entirely rational government that only focuses on what it believes to be what's best for the people and the country, then that government is probably going to lose legitimacy over the long run. Because the public itself and the voting public uh, is not entirely rational. You know, voters are not fully informed about every issue and their priorities are not always the same as what uh, purely or supposedly uh, an attempt at objective leadership would want. And uh, so there is something to be said for a democratic government that sometimes does strange, bizarre things on the part of uh, a voting public, because while that voting public may not want things that are particularly coherent, um, by giving the by the, go the government by giving them those things is able to maintain its legitimacy and in turn is able to maintain political stability to a greater degree than an authoritarian country which has a greater capacity to act uh, objectively but in doing so in acting purely objectively frequently does things that aggravate the public to say nothing of you know the other many other problems with authoritarian politics such as with trust and whatnot but that again ties into legitimacy so yeah, a certain amount of uh, passions in politics does have a useful role to play in so much as it facilitates long-term political stability, albeit sometimes at the cost of short-term political stability. Still doesn't mean a referendum is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, well, the frustrating thing when you're watching a lot of the political discourse, especially around election season, is the the way that oftentimes the more emotional topics are discussed that tend to be more divisive rather than the practical topics that uh, are easy to agree on that don't quite require a particular political orientation. But if you get people to put their heads together, they could get a bunch of useful stuff done. But I think some of those issues tend to be less uh, saucy and attention grabbing. They can be more boring, like this bridge is about to give out and we're all going to die falling into this ravine. It's not quite as fun, like, oh, we have to decide on a bridge project versus, like, I don't know, stuff that gets people's emotions riled up where they know somebody or some story or something really catches your your more human-animal social sense. Social issues do matter, but I think the... The energy can be wasted if you just throw it into an arena where it's pretty close to a 50-50 split and you can't get people to agree. Yeah. I think it's best to just kind of put those on hold until you get the more obvious ones out of the way, personally. Yeah, historically, the U.S. has kind of gotten out of that by having a relatively homogenous culture. Because if you're more homogenous, you're less likely to have a 50-50 split, you know. Uh, on important issues, or at least social issues that are perceived to be important. Uh, one of the problems that happens as a country grows in population, though, is that it basically becomes impossible to maintain that degree of homogeneity. It's not even just, you know, ethnic or racial. I mean, just the biggest differences in the United States right now are not between, you know, whites and blacks or whites and Hispanic. It's actually mostly between whites and other whites. That's where the biggest divide is. And the uh, you know, that straddles, you know, obviously those differences straddle, you know, ethnic and racial and religious lines and whatnot. But uh, the fact is the United States has grown in population over such a wide area 
for so long now that invariably there invariably there are now there has developed immense differences between uh, different regions and different uh, people of different economic interests and different backgrounds. I mean, it was probably just inevitable that the country was going to diversify in terms of, you know, political preferences, philosophy preferences, uh, outlook, you know, etc. Even even if all of the country had just were still white, you know, even if the whole country were white right now and had developed that way. A country with this many people, I think it's what, 320 million people over such a large area, you, you just can't be homogenous like that. There's just too many differences that come up. Well, I, guess. I think part of the thing is it's a few factors together. If I had to just take guesses at it, one of the factors is that people want to be different to an extent. So even if they share a lot of common ground, they're going to try to look for the differences to make themselves feel unique, which I think is part of why we have a fairly divisive political culture right now, is if we have a bunch of overlap in terms of our culture, then we're going to try to focus on what doesn't overlap. And then in addition to that, with the mass media sort of clickbait era, we tend to focus on the stuff that is the loudest information rather than the most true information or the most helpful information. Just the stuff that really gets you going and riles you up emotionally speaking. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not really, I think there is a little bit of religious stuff between more secular and more Christian, but it's more of the left-leaning versus right-leaning conservative versus progressive is what it seems like to me yeah i think that's a pretty accurate portrayal and to be fair it also ties into economic development you know a lot of the biggest differences in u.s politics are rural urban that's a pretty significant aspect as well you know we didn't have so many people living in metropolitan areas that were so large a hundred years ago or you know even 50 years ago so large metropolitan areas, that's, uh, that facilitates the emergence of a very particular culture, it seems. You know, that seems to be the pattern. And so that's driven a significant amount of uh, divergence in political preferences as well. We need the voice of the moderate the person who's like, eh, I mean, whatever. <laughs> it's not a very loud voice, though, like I was saying. To be moderate isn't particularly attention grabbing and emotional. Well, it's uh, useful. You know, it helps cool people down a little bit if it's done right. If it's done badly, you can make it worse. You know, you just got to be able to tread that line. Some of it's structural, and there's not much you can do about that. You know, but hypothetically, you know, there could be some kind of ideology or some rhetoric, you know, some method by which uh, moderate voices can help try to reach some kind of political equilibrium such that people don't really feel like they need to be at each other's throats all the time. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had a really nice conversation with my family for oh, one of my aunts. Uh, it's her 60th birthday. And um, 
they're conservative, like very solidly kind of the Christian conservative base or whatever. And there's just so much common ground for the basic issues that we face as a country. So stuff like the gerrymandering that makes both sides feel like it's not really fair for them. Uh, the dishonesty in a lot of politics, the lack of transparency, the way that privacy works now. It's like there's a whole laundry list of issues that are really easy to agree upon, whether you're left-leaning or right-leaning. But then on the news, you see them just going for our buttons to try to rile us up with all the stuff that is really divisive. And that's basically all they talk about. So, yeah, I think for your average person, if you're having a dinner conversation with people who are politically opposed to you in some ways, you have the choice in front of you of whether you want to focus on the differences or the similarities. I think either one can be fruitful if you do it in a tactful way at the right time with the right people. Because some people, I think, they consume the the most uh, emotionally saturated news and they basically just arm themselves with all the quips of the pundits where they're kind of teasing and making fun of the other side. And if that's your mindset where you're kind of just echoing the quips, then it's really hard to build a productive conversation with another person. But uh, I think that's part of the benefit of not identifying yourself as a member of either sports team, because a lot of times you'll be on this uh, segment with me and people will try to ask about, well, what's his political orientation? Is he conservative or progressive or whatever? And answering that question can sometimes be a bad move because then people attach a whole set of assumptions about you and it can mm -hmm. be harder to just speak with them as a peer and as an equal. Sometimes they'll think of you as a person who's batting for the opposite team. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the biggest reason that I don't talk about that. Mm. Not that there's much to talk about anyway. I'm pretty apolitical in any case at this point in my life. But if you sound smart to someone and they like you, then they want to imagine you having their alignment. But if they don't like you, then they will imagine you as from the other team. That's how yeah, there is that. <laughs> there is that. I don't know how, <laughs> you know, I don't know how attractive I would be to one team or the other. So I hope no, nobody's really pining for me to be on their team. Join us. We are the chosen. So that's Kashmir. Uh, that's kind of what's going on there. It's right now the Indian government is just kind of trying to hang on and manage it. Hopefully, they're hoping that it doesn't spin out of control with a big flare-up in the insurgency. But that kind of is probably going to depend on what they're going to do. You know, if they really jump in and make a lot of really disruptive changes that go against the grain of local political sentiment, then that's that makes it much more likely that there will be violence. But if they don't, or if they do it slowly, maybe then it kind of works. It, that kind of remains to be seen. So that's something to watch for the future. Just what the Indian government does in Kashmir now. Your move, Indian government. <laughs> so that was big news for a while. That was, uh, that was actually something I had in my notes from weeks ago. It was uh, one of the things I was going to talk about when we came back after that long break, but we never quite got to it. Mm -hmm. We did, ran out of time last week, too. <laughs> so yeah, it's well, it's hard when we have Brexit to talk about. Everybody loves Brexit. 
It's the gift that keeps on giving. Now let's see, what else do we have here? Well, the United States signed a free trade, well, I shouldn't say signed, but there's agreement, quote-unquote, in principle between the United States and Japan uh, for a free trade agreement. And I can kind of briefly go over what's nominally been agreed to, or at least what's been released in media. Uh, Japan is going to open up its markets to U.S. agricultural imports, Industrial tariffs are a bit of a sticking point, so that's still being negotiated, but that's kind of, it was inferred, or rather implied, uh, that that was kind of a technical thing and that it's going to get worked out before too long. Um, apparently, sp the specific problem is that the United States government does not want to lower its 2.5% tariff on Japanese automobiles. That's uh, apparently a sticking point for the U.S., uh, digital rights are allegedly part of the deal, but there's not really any details yet, so I'm not sure what that would be. Um, I kind of have a suspicion that it's uh, going to look pretty similar to some of the reforms that were implemented as part of the TPP agreement. Uh, but that's going to be a pattern you'll see emerge here. Basically, uh, another aspect here is IP regulatory alignment and services. IP is intellectual property, so intellectual property, regulatory alignment, services sector, all not part of the deal. Those things uh, are not going to be included. So it's mostly going to be lower industrial tariffs and uh, a more open market in Japan for agricultural imports from the United States. That seems to be the crux of it. Now, the thing about this deal is that nothing Japan or the United States has agreed to in this deal is really anything that they had not already agreed to as part of the TPP negotiation. And so that's the pattern I kind of mentioned before. A lot of the agreements that the United States has made with uh, other trade partners have generally been pretty similar to TPP, at least in Asia anyway. And so they're not really giving concessions per se. They're more just saying, okay, well, we agreed to do this before, so I guess it's not a problem if we agree to do it here. But that gets turned uh, in the media into a you know major bilateral trade agreement, some kind of great triumph. But really, they're just sort of rehashing the TPP. But unlike the TPP, not every uh, these new this new trade agreement with Japan doesn't cover all of that. So, for example, industrial goods that was kind of a settled issue in TPP. Digital rights uh, were part of that deal as well. And kind of like what I was saying before, I suspect that. If the pattern holds, then uh, whatever digital rights were agreed in this bilateral deal will probably look a lot like the ones uh, negotiated in the TPP. Uh, the TPP did have intellectual property regulatory alignment and the services sector as part of the deal, so that's a shortcoming of the new bilateral deal. And I'm not sure why the United States uh, settled for less on that count. I'm not sure. Uh, I would have to kind of do more digging on that, but apparently uh, they're satisfied with relatively limited gains involving agriculture and industry. So again, uh, this is sort of another non-event, basically, you know, sort of something that was already going to happen that has now been repackaged. And we've already seen that with the renegotiation of the free trade deal with South Korea and uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA. Uh, and, you know, 
possibly other possibly others that are pending as well will probably look similar so you can kind of put this in the same category um, it is a step forward in terms of free trade and opening markets so it's not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination uh, but at the same time they basically just took some of the low-hanging fruit from TPP and repackaged that as a bilateral trade deal and so this is more of a media exercise than anything So that's something to look forward to as well. That should uh, help take the heat off of the U.S. agriculture uh, owing to the China trade war. Uh, once the deal is implemented, you know, once it's finalized anyway and eventually ratified, that'll open up a market for them. But that's probably going to take a while. It's probably going to be, a, it generally takes a while for one to finish off all the details in the trade negotiation. Uh, but then especially ratification, because ratification kind of brings the treaty out of the realm of international politics and into the realm of domestic politics, and that can be very unpredictable. You know, even, for example, uh, the NAFTA deal that was renegotiated, I think now it's supposed to be called USMCA, I think. That's uh, the new North American trade uh, agreement. So... With that, that has been successfully renegotiated. There is a deal that all parties have agreed to, but it hasn't been ratified in the United States yet. And Congress is kind of suggesting that maybe they won't ratify it, uh, partly owing to some concerns about certain aspects of the deal that I can't remember quite off the top of my head. Uh, but there were some things that the Democrats in the House of Representatives were a little bit upset about, so... They may kick that back to the White House and ask for some changes, or they may just shut the whole thing down completely and wait for 2020, in which case they'll have some more leverage to make the kind of changes that they want. That remains to be seen, but that illustrates how domestic politics can hold up trade deals even after they've been negotiated successfully. Uh, the international negotiation is just the first step. Navigating domestic politics is the second step. So we'll see if... Uh, the U.S.-Japan free trade deal can survive that. I suspect the Japanese government will ratify it without too much of a problem. Generally, the Japanese government is pretty centralized, uh, sufficiently so that when it does something internationally, it's pretty able to follow it up domestically. Unlike the United States, which has a lot of checks and balances and mechanisms to make uh, things difficult for everybody. Politicians, <laughs> that is to say. <laughs> it makes it difficult for politicians to do whatever they want. Uh, so that could be a problem, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. One of the upshots here is that uh, it kind of mitigates some of the nascent fear amongst uh, economic actors in Japan about a potential trade war with America. You know, there had been some threats emanating from the White House about a possible 25% tariff on Japanese cars. And that led to some uh, anxiety in Japan. But with this new trade deal in place, uh, that's probably going to ease anxiety a bit. And that'll be good for business since that'll impact expectations in a positive way. So that'll take a load off the minds of Japanese policymakers and businessmen, which should, be a, which should have a positive effect in and of itself on Japan's economy, if not also its trade partners. As a final note here, I kind of suspect that um, if Trump loses in 2020 or 
if he wins in 2020, then after he is gone in 2024, whoever follows him, I kind of suspect is going to return to TPP. Maybe I should explain what TPP is. TPP is a Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was that big Trans-Pacific free trade deal that uh, the Obama administration had uh, negotiated. I think it, I think negotiations were actually started in the Bush administration. I might be misremembering that, but I want to say it started late in the Bush administration and then was carried on through uh, the Obama administration. And it was a big keystone trade negotiation because uh, it was considered... Uh, one of the big ways that the United States could compete with China and the Pacific for influence and help solidify uh, Pacific nations' ties with the United States such that it would be harder for China to push them around and use its economic influence uh, to pressure them. Uh, it's not, it was never meant to be a silver bullet. You know, the TPP by itself was never going to be, a, you know, the surefire way that the United States maintained a strong position in the Pacific vis-a-vis -vis China, but it was considered one of the strongest policy options that the U.S. government could take to maintain a strong U.S. presence in the Pacific and to just to signal that it was committed to the Pacific, as is uh, they withdrew from it. And that's been somewhat deleterious diplomatically for U.S. diplomacy in the region. But I suspect, again, uh, I suspect that whoever comes after Trump will probably return to that and uh, I suspect a lot of nations in the Pacific will probably be pretty willing to uh, entertain that. One of the things that uh, Pacific nations did is they actually passed the DPP by themselves. Um, they were kind of hoping that the U.S. would participate since they'd already negotiated the treaty, but after the U.S. basically left, withdrew from the treaty negotiation, the other partners involved uh, all kind of went out on their own and ratified the treaty anyway without the United States. But one of the things they did is to take some of the controversial aspects of the treaty uh, that the U.S. had been kind of hung up on, and uh, they left those as areas that were open to change. And uh, the reason, you know, that's sort of generalizing a bit, but the idea is that if the United States did want to come back and join the TPP, it wouldn't have to accept a version of the TPP in which uh, the areas that they were concerned with were not addressed. You know, they wouldn't have to take a take it or leave it approach. America's partners basically said, okay, well, we think that you might come back later, and so we're going to give you the option of a deal that we think we would have ended up with if you'd stayed in, in which these areas you were concerned with are still are going to be open to negotiation and subject to change, such that it'll be easier for you to come back if you want to. It's just a wordy way of saying they're leaving the door open for the U.S. to come back later. So they kind of recognize and maybe even hope that the United States later on under different leadership will consider uh, integrating with the TPP trade area and ratifying the trade deal. So I think there's a desire by U.S. trade partners for that to happen, but also for a number of political actors, probably also most businesses, uh, that the TPP will eventually be signed and ratified as law in the United States and that that will be a way for the U.S. to not only open up new markets and help its economy, but also to signal that it is committed to uh, a strong presence in the Pacific region. But I could be wrong. That's speculation on my part. Maybe things, uh, maybe the Trump administration's approach is here to stay. We'll see. And it's, uh, that's a big open question right now, just how committed the U.S. can be to the Pacific when
it's not really using this big tool that it has at its disposal, the TPP. Well, if I could ask, are there any candidates running who you think if they do win office, they'll basically run the show in a similar way? Or is he just that unique of a snowflake? He's pretty unique. Um, this approach to trade is pretty distinctive. I mean, most, I think most presidents and uh, presidential nominees, as the case may be, or those running for president, I should put it like that, those running for the nomination for their respective parties, uh, generally they have orthodox economic experts and advisors who kind of advise them and tell them that uh, trade deficits don't really matter, at least on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, you kind of have to aggregate them, and at that level they kind of matter. But even then, uh, generally things even out. But obviously the Trump administration does not take that view. They have a somewhat different perspective. Um, whether they earnestly believe it or whether it's just a talking point they use to generate leverage in negotiations, I guess that's debatable, but also kind of impossible to know, given what we know of the inner workings of the administration, or at least given what I know. Uh, so I don't, I think that uh, almost any other presidential candidate who might end up in the White House would have a very different approach to managing America's trade relations. That doesn't necessarily mean they would be a lot less hawkish. You know, there, prob there could well be uh, another candidate who takes uh, after Trump in the sense that they want to take a very confrontational approach to pressuring China uh, into addressing some of the U.S.'s concerns about uh, unfair trade practices, you know, state-owned enterprises, technology transfers, etc. So that's quite possible. There could easily be someone else like that. Uh, as well as somebody who, you know, also takes a much more forceful approach to pursuing U.S. interests. But I think even in that case, uh, it would be better organized, most likely. You know, I think most of the candidates running have a fair amount of political experience and would be reluctant to be quite so gung-ho as the Trump administration has been uh, in pursuing their vision of American interests. I suspect uh, another candidate as hawkish as Trump, but better organized, would probably take a more nuanced approach to pursuing American interests. Again, it would probably still be a pretty strong-arm approach in that case, uh, but a more nuanced approach is more likely to generate results, since in diplomacy uh, you're always running up against domestic political considerations in the other country that you may or may not be fully aware of. You know, you have to tread carefully. But I don't... That said, I, I don't think there's anybody who would do it. As far as I know, I don't think there's anybody running for president right now who would do things exactly as Trump is doing them. And I don't know that there will be. <laughs> I could be wrong. To break out uh, down the hawkish point, it seems like Trump is hawkish in the trade sense, but not in the military sense. Yeah, that's a good characterization. He's not, uh, well... I guess you could point out that he's very hawkish on Iran, in that sense, even uh, on foreign, even on national security matters, he's very on, on that regard. He's hawkish, but in general, he's pretty. He's relatively dovish on national security. He's not really super gung ho getting involved in uh, a lot of other countries' conflicts. Although that's actually kind of a mixed bag, even outside the Middle East. You know, the U.S. has been deepening involvement in Africa 
uh, on counterinsurgency operations and uh, train and assist operations. And it's doing a lot more of that in Africa lately. And of course, Iran and Syria also suggest that the U.S. is still nominally committed to some degree of interventionism, or at least uh, international pressure uh, on issues of interest to the United States, such as the Iran, Iran's nuclear program. So technically, yes, Trump is dovish in principle. You know, he wants the U.S. to be less involved in other countries' affairs, and he's been reluctant to get involved in, you know, Syria, for example. But Iran kind of belies the fact that he is sort of a strongman leader in the sense that he likes strongman solutions. You know, Iran is a running sore in U.S. foreign policy, and he wants to deal with it brusquely and with a muscular approach, and that kind of requires a hawkish approach in that case. So I don't know that, you know, Trump is a politician who defies so many categorizations and labels and, you know, whatnot. I think really uh, he doesn't have any one approach to foreign policy. I think he takes the approach that he thinks suits him given circumstances at a given time. And those circumstances change and in turn so too does his policy preferences on given issues. It's really a fairly mercenary way, a mercenary approach to dealing with foreign policy and policy making in general. Um, Maybe it was inevitable, <laughs> you know, the pol politics in the U.S. have kind of been trending more towards a certain amount of real politic and self-interest on the part of politicians. So, you know, maybe this is just sort of the logical end point. But uh, that's debatable, highly debatable. And in any case, uh, I think the Trump administration is probably not the most organized. I think that's kind of the main takeaway there. And uh, I think any other politician of like mind would have more organization, and in turn, their policy making would look different. Cool. So, that's Japan. Quick, quick little review there. Tariffs. Tariffs. <laughs> I used to be rolling in my economy, but then I got tariffed. Let's see. Oh, so speaking of Iran, you know, something else that was in the news was a proposal by France uh, to try to help Iran engage in trade. That might sound weird, but uh, the U.S. has... A lot of sanctions on Iran, you know, section, secondary sanctions that sanction companies outside Iran and the U.S. who do business with Iran. Uh, those secondary sanctions make European companies very reluctant to do business with Iran, even though Europe has not really put sanctions on Iran, because they're still adhering to the nuclear deal that was negotiated by the Obama administration. So the fact that uh, European companies are not willing to really, well, most of them are not willing to trade with Iran is very upsetting for the Iranian government because the whole benefit of the nuclear deal was that their economy would have a chance to recover after crippling sanctions had been levied against them for so long uh, before the nuclear deal was agreed. But if European companies are not willing to do business with them, then they don't really get that benefit. 
So for them, it kind of feels like sanctions are still in place, even though technically they're not. So there's been a lot of uh, tension over that with the Iranian government threatening Europe as well as the other countries involved in the nuclear deal, uh, threatening them that if the U Iranian economy uh, is not able to engage in trade uh, with some of these other places, then they're not going to really have any incentive to stay in the nuclear deal and they're just going to abandon it. So Europe, for its part, has responded to that by trying to encourage European companies to trade with Iran um, to little to no effect. Uh, most European companies would rather protect their trade with the United States than uh, with Iran, or more accurately, to enjoy potential trade with Iran. Uh, the U.S. is just a much bigger market, and so generally uh, that's the side that they fall on. They generally hew towards American preferences on that count so that they can preserve that part of their business. So later on, there was a mechanism set up, another approach basically, in which uh, trade, uh, well, currency specifically, trade deals that would be engaged in by European and Iranian companies uh, could use this mechanism to clear currency uh, whenever they made a deal. So that was a way of getting around the U.S. dollar. Uh, dollar exchanges have to be cleared by, or are cleared by, uh, what's called swift banks or swift banking. I don't remember exactly. But basically that's the clearance that all dollar transactions go through. And uh, the big uh, U.S. sanction, the big you know weapon that U.S. sanctions have been using over the past 20 years has been to deny access to that clearance system to sanctioned actors. The SWIFT banks are actually in Belgium, I think, which surprised me. They're not actually in the U.S., but basically the U.S. threatens them with sanctions if they don't uh, implement the U.S. SWIFT banking sanctions. So uh, sanctions, sanctions, providing sanctions. <laughs> so that uh, led to nothing. Uh, the currency mechanism, and I'm, you know, I'm vaguely remembering it, so this is a very general description. Uh, European companies were still not really willing to engage in trade with Iran, even with that mechanism in place, because the problem wasn't really uh, the U.S. dollar. The problem was the business. You know, even if you can, you can use euros or you know whatever currency you want, not having access to the dollar specifically isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself. The bigger problem is that if they had traded with Iran, then they would be cut off from the U.S. market. That was the bigger threat. So then Europe was back to square one, and Iran, the Iranian government is just getting more and more frustrated because uh, their economy is still you know, tanking. So the most recent proposal that came out over the past couple of weeks was an interesting one in which uh, the French government under uh, Macron proposed to extend Iran $15 billion of credit. And this credit would be guaranteed uh, with Iranian oil. So that would give the Iranian government some hard currency with which it could export. Uh, it also, in so much as you know, that loan ends up getting paid back directly with oil, which would be a kind of barter, uh, that would itself represent a de facto allowance of Iran to export oil in a way that it would not be able to do otherwise. And uh, that 
could hypothetically do the trick. You know, that's not going to really open up a lot of uh, trade that would otherwise happen. Most of this is going to be probably government to government. But for the Iranian government, you know, they're the actor they're most interested in anyway. So uh, that might be enough to kind of ease their concerns since it would give the government itself hard currency with which to engage in whatever operations that saw fit. You know, the suspicion is that they want to use hard currency to engage in espionage and uh, propping up, subsidizing violent activity in the Middle East, you know, Hezbollah and popular mobilization units, you know, entities like those, basically. But they probably also would use some of it for social spending and to try to buy things like medicine and other needed goods that are a little difficult to obtain right now. It's not clear if it's really going to be enough. $15 billion isn't a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Iran would probably rather have $15 billion than not. So it's something. <laughs> On today's episode of would you or would you not like $15 billion? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's money. You know, it's money in the bank if they can get it. Uh, but their overall economy would probably generate a lot more tax revenue than that uh, if the sanctions were dropped. So for them... Yeah, something is better than nothing, but it's also not really an entirely satisfactory solution. So it may be that the, they negotiate further and the, the line of credit increases in value or they, you know, they have some other aspect that they add to it. Uh, but this kind of illustrates uh, the extent to which Europe is willing to go to try to prop up this ailing nuclear deal. Uh, giving billions of dollars in credit is controversial in any country. So in this case, it's almost as uh, though they're trying to buy peace in the Middle East, so to speak. Uh, obviously, that's, well, maybe not peace in the Middle East, but buy denuclearization in Iran. But that's something to watch. That's an interesting proposal, and that could lead somewhere. It's not clear right now, but uh, an interesting proposal. Cool. Got lots of nice feedback in the chat so far. It's always cool to see. Sometimes when I start the stream with Agent Smithy, you know, the viewership just keeps creeping up. People tune in and are like, hey, this is awesome. We'll stick around. Good having you on. I think this is either episode 61 or 62 of this. Most of them are on YouTube. You may be listening from the podcast. We are speaking to you from the past to you in the present whenever this ends up getting onto the SoundCloud Agent Smith has a podcast in the works as well. And just as a note, if you want any help uh, getting that stuff uh, online or polished in some way, we have some wizards who work with us who are really good with the technical oh, cool. side of all that. Yeah, Cobra Venom helps me a lot. He's the guy who set up this Zencaster format for us. Oh, nice. Yeah, because we record on this website it's recording from your computer to the website and from me to the website, which increases the overall quality of the podcast recording. If we do it through Discord, your audio is compressed to fit whatever goes through that voice channel. So my audio quality is always going to be better than yours, even if we are using the same mic and the same kind of setup. Gotcha. Well, if I... Uh any problems you know i'm i'll hit you up maybe you can uh hook me up with them cool well, let's see are we doing okay on time 
Now let me check for you. One nice thing about this is it has a timer. So we are one hour, 19 minutes and 39 seconds into this. Okay. So I think having it a little bit less than three hours is good because we don't have to cut it and start a new one. I think that can create some potential problems. Oh, I see. Okay. I'll try to wrap it up in an hour and a half then. Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to filter out some stuff. I know we don't need all of this. I'm trying. I'm trying to get you the key updates. I guess. Well, have you heard anything about Hong Kong lately? Mm, not beyond what we discussed last week. I did see some questions in the chat about Hong Kong in general, and I think uh, one of them was addressed in our previous episode, which you can find in the Twitch video. Before. Uh, in the Twitch highlight, rather, before it gets ported as a podcast and a YouTube video. It was basically a question about why uh, China is communist, but Hong Kong is less so. Well, Hong Kong's not communist at all. Yeah, Yeah. which also counts as less than. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, but it's good that you make that clarification. Well, maybe it's nitpicking. I try not to. Sometimes I fall into it by accident. No, I think it's good. I'm not going to be super offended if I'm corrected or if there's a little uh, clarification that you make. I think being flexible in conversation, especially when you're talking about complicated stuff, is a very, very, very valuable mindset to have. Some people are very rooted in their opinions. They want to have their opinion and keep it. And if someone else suggests that they're wrong or not fully correct, then that's a personal attack, and I'm I'm now upset at you. <laughs> well, in Hong Kong, I guess, long story short, the extradition bill that they were protesting over was officially withdrawn, which, as you may recall, was the key demand that the protesters had and was the... Uh, main issue, basically what started the protests in the first place. So there was kind of an interesting series of events that led up to it. Uh, There was a leaked recording of Carrie Lam, whom again is the central executive, quote-unquote, of uh, Hong Kong. And that leaked recording uh, had her saying that she had bungled managing the protests and that she would resign if she could. Which was a pretty big thing to admit. Probably doesn't surprise anybody, but (laughs) having the recording leaked kind of makes it official, more or less. So the next day after that, the government of Hong Kong announced that they were withdrawing the extradition bill and also launching an inquiry into police conduct, which was another protest demand. They haven't announced anything on uh, the other protester demands, like an amnesty for protesters or uh, universal suffrage. You know, we talked a little bit about that before. That's a more recent demand they made in the past couple weeks, I think. Uh, But the protesters, for their part, are saying that they won't quit until all demands are met, not just a few. So it seems that uh, the protests are going to continue, and they have, you know, since this happened. But uh, 
the whole series of events was a little weird, and it kind of had me thinking maybe it was just sort of a setup. Well, not a setup, but maybe that it was artificial. I kind of suspect maybe the Chinese government wanted to leak that audio, went out of their way to record it and leak it, uh, so that they could save face. You know, if they do give in to uh, the protests demand, the protesters demand to withdraw the extradition bill, that kind of looks like a defeat. And it makes certain people involved look kind of bad. The Chinese government writ large, but also probably people in uh, the Chinese government's Hong Kong office. So if they can leak this audio, that means that they can kind of deflect blame. They can say, okay, well, it's not our fault. It's Carrie Lam's fault. Blame her. And of course, as we've talked about before, you know, saving face is a big deal in Chinese culture. So I'm a little suspicious maybe that's the actual reason the audio was leaked. I think maybe they decided finally to just withdraw the uh, extradition bill, and uh, the leak is the method of preference with which to deal with the issue of covering asses. Ever important in politics, of course. <laughs> so let me check my notes here. So it's kind of a, it'll be interesting to see how the protesters respond. This is a big concession on the part of Hong Kong government. And it's the main issue, you know, at uh, that nom technically it was the one issue that was in dispute. So uh, now that the government has given ground on that, it's going to be uh, interesting to see, one, if the protests continue, it seems like they will, and two, how the government responds to that. Uh, you know, with a big concession in play, the government would probably like to see something in return. And if they don't get anything, that lends a lot more credence to people who are arguing for a harder crackdown. Not a violent crackdown. I still don't think there's going to be any kind of 1989 Tiananmen Square, you know, in Hong Kong. Um, but it may be that positions harden if the government is not able to get some kind of concession in return by the protesters. So that's something to keep an eye on. Let's see, checking my notes again. Oh, yeah, so there's the issue of timing. So why now? Why did the Chinese government suddenly want to give ground on this at this particular point in time? Um, it's difficult to say because, again, Chinese politics is very opaque, you know, as we've discussed before. Uh, there's a couple potential ideas. One is that Trump had been making more noise about it, and it may be that the Chinese government was afraid it might become an issue in the trade negotiations. Uh, so maybe for that reason, they just wanted to go away and deal with it. Uh, it might also have been just because Beijing lost confidence in Carrie Lam. Uh, so it might be that she's set to resign pretty soon, if that's the case. You know, if there is just a total government collapse in a, in a faith, I guess, in Carrie Lam, then maybe they're just looking to get somebody new in who they think will be able to manage the problem more competently. So if that's the case, then Carrie Lam is probably going to resign soon, and uh, there's going to be a new guy in place uh, who will probably be more of a hardliner, I would expect. Somebody who's going to be more willing to toe the party line, so to speak, vis-a-vis -vis Chinese, the Chinese government's political preferences. 
and somebody who maybe is more can deal more deftly with political issues such as this. I'm not saying that they're going to put a guy in who's just going to crack down violently whenever there's opposition to something that Beijing wants, but uh, he's going to be somebody who's more skilled and deft at implementing Beijing's preferences such that Beijing gets its way without causing, you know, massive citywide protests. Now, maybe that's not entirely possible at this point, given the breakdown in trust between Hong Kong's public and Beijing, but uh, regardless of how true that is, I think China is not going to, well, that is to say Beijing is not going to just give up on things like the withdrawal bill, if not also the withdrawal bill itself. In fact, it could be that in a few months we're right back where we started with the Hong Kong government in trouble again because it's trying to do something on behalf of Beijing that the Hong Kong public doesn't like or want. But again, that all assumes that Carrie Lam is just in the doghouse with Beijing and that they're looking to find somebody to replace her. That's speculation on my part. Uh, so again, you know, to reiterate the points we've covered so far, it may be that China picked the, sorry, Beijing, it may be that Beijing picked now uh, because they, you know, lost faith in Carrie Lam or because they're worried about trade negotiations with Trump. And then that brings us to the third possibility, which is Angela Merkel uh, is coming, well, actually came already, um, came to China, was coming to China for trade negotiations between China and, I think, Europe. Germany, certainly, specifically, but I think she was also kind of going on behalf of broader Europe as well. Uh, she went there to discuss a bilateral investment treaty you know, the German economy is slowing down a bit, so finding new sources of demand is a bit of a priority for Berlin. And uh, there was a fear, there may have been a fear in Beijing that uh, if the Hong Kong protests were ongoing, that maybe it would look bad for Merkel back home in Germany. And in which case, maybe she'd cancel the trip entirely, or maybe uh, possibilities in terms of trade agreements uh, would be mitigated. So it may be that they decided to uh, give that big concession in the hopes that the protests would stop and then that would ease the way for Angela Merkel. Even if the protests don't stop, giving up a major concession looks good. So that kind of uh, eases pressure on Angela Merkel to make demands vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. So those are some possibilities there as far as why China picked the time they did. Anybody's guess, really, it's it's you know pretty much just speculation, but those all could hypothetically have played a role, such as the difficulty of reading politics in authoritarian states. A little bit of Sovietology has to be uh, referred to in such cases. But yeah, that's the Hong Kong update. It could be that they're reaching an end game, or potentially a new stage of some sort of what kind remains to be seen, but it's uh, evolving. It's uh, That was a big change in the dynamic there. So it could have corresponding big repercussions in terms of how the government and the protesters interact over the next few months. Ladies and gentlemen, there is your Hong Kong update with Agent Smith. <laughs> so let's see, I'll skip some of this stuff so we can get down to the fun stuff. Uh, I kind of had a correction from last week. I tried to, I made an analogy. I was talking about the Eurozone crisis last week and I made a, I tried to make an analogy uh, 
that turned out to be pretty garbage. <laughs> I was listening to it again later on and uh, ended up realizing that it was not a very good analogy. But I think I'll just gloss over that. Just take last week's analogy vis-a-vis Europe with a grain of salt. That didn't, that didn't pan out quite <laughs> as I imagined it in my head when I was saying it. Uh, let's see. I want to try to get to questions, and I know we're kind of running out of time to a degree. So Brexit, we'll do a Brexit update. That'll be fun. And then we can talk a little bit about, yeah, we can just skip ahead to the Houthi thing. That's the big news today. So let's see. Yeah, the Brexit update. So to kind of, also, I wanted to kind of cover something in this Brexit update that I didn't cover last week, which is that uh, before the vote on the extension bill, uh, the Johnson government had been threatening Tory rebels with what's called deselection, which basically means they've been kicked out of the party. And that was threatened uh, beforehand to try to intimidate potential rebels into not voting with the opposition. It didn't work, but as it was, that threat has been carried out. That was not an idle threat. So now all of those Tories that have voted against the government have de facto been ejected from the party. And that led to a big hue and cry in Britain, well, within the Conservative Party anyway, uh, about you know freedom of conscience and being able to vote your conscience and whether the party was being too brusque and forceful in dealing with dissent, etc. So that's just another example of norms breaking down a bit in Britain's political system. So I just wanted to touch briefly on that. Uh, let's see. Also, given that the extension bill has been passed, there's this open question of uh, what the Johnson government can really do about it. You know, like we talked about last week, the Johnson government is dead set opposed to an extension. Uh, but now that the bill has been, I think it's been passed, or at least it's set to be passed very soon. Parliament went out of its way, went very far out of its way to try to make sure that happened. So if it hasn't happened already, it's it's set to happen. It's been scheduled and the votes are uh, being, you know, it's happening, so to speak. But anyway, the Johnson government doesn't have a lot of options. One of the things they can do to avoid an extension is to ask a country in Europe, in the European Union, uh, to veto uh, any Europe on the European side of potential extension. So the British government is obligated by Parliament, having passed this extension bill, uh, to ask for an extension, but Europe is not obligated to reciprocate. They don't have to give an extension. And in order for Europe to give an extension, there has to be a unanimous vote by member states. So the Johnson government could basically politely ask one of those member states to veto on their behalf the extension bill that they, uh, the extension bill request that they filed with the European Union. Hypothetically, that's possible, but it's unlikely because most European states are probably not going to want to go to bat uh, for the Johnson government. They don't really have anything to gain from that. There was some speculation France might. The French government has been a little skeptical of these perpetual extensions. They kind of just want to get the damn thing out of the way. 
and finalized. But uh, they're also they also don't want to burn political capital in Europe by doing that, given that most other countries on the continent uh, would prefer not to force a no-deal Brexit, given the option. So France probably isn't going to be the uh, white knight there for the Johnson government, most likely. Could still happen, but it seems unlikely. So another potential strategy that Johnson could use is to send a letter asking the EU for an extension, as required by law, but then sending another letter explaining that the government doesn't actually want the extension. <laughs> a just kidding letter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please, I just really need an extension. I mean, we're working really hard on it, and I think we're really close to breaking through here. Just need a little bit more time. And then he sent the next letter. Ha, gotcha! <laughs> <laughs> well, in the article I read, uh, they cited some experts who said that this would be explicitly illegal. Uh, so that's not as likely an option. Hypothetically, they could do that. Uh, but going against the will of Parliament like that, given the nature of the law in question, the extension bill, that would be, I don't want to say unconstitutional, but uh, explicitly illegal. Let's go with that. So that's where the Brexit issue is right now. It's a pretty brief update. Uh, but that's the thing that we're kind of watching for now. The Johnson government has stated pretty unequivocally that it's going to explore every possible option in terms of trying to get around this extension bill. Uh, they've you know, all but said that they would consider just everything. So it remains to be seen what exactly they're going to do. And it maybe they even do something particularly desperate. Uh, it's anybody's guess right now. So that's where we are. So a brief update there. Got your Hong Kong, got your Brexit, got your Kashmir. And uh, let's see. I don't know. How interested are you in political norms regarding the Queen of England? I think it's a fun thing. It seems like the Queen of England and the monarchy in Britain is sort of a relic that they keep around. Yeah. But they do have some actual power. But how often is it used? It seems like they're basically celebrities that have a like five percent more political pull than a, an actor in the U.S. or something. Like mm -hmm. someone who's a household name with a pretty big voice. The monarchy in England, they can do a little bit more stuff than that, but it seems kind of symbolic. But at the same time, it's a little bit nostalgic, I guess, because mm -hmm. the French they just vary over through their monarchy and. <laughs> in a very violent way of like, let's just not do this ever again in any capacity. Whereas in Britain, they still have that, like an icon kind of thing. Mm. Well, that's, that's, that's accurate. I think that's an accurate characterization. But the issue has come up here with regard to the Brexit thing. So it has to do with quote unquote advice. Um, as you say, the Queen of England, well, I should, maybe I should say the monarchy, you know, the royals, uh, their power is largely symbolic. Technically, the queen is the king or queen is the head of state, but they don't have any substantive powers. Uh, as head of state, they do ceremonial things like accept the formation of governments, you know, queen speeches, technically. Uh, those aren't scheduled by the queen, though, but lots of ceremonial type stuff. <clears throat> now, 
when the queen does those ceremonial activities, some of which are pretty important, again, forming a government, pretty key, uh, they use those powers on the quote-unquote advice from elected officials, generally the prime minister and his government. So there's a norm in place uh, in which she just kind of does what the government wants her to do. But the law actually is not clear as to whether she has to do that. When a government gives the queen quote-unquote advice about something that it needs her to do, she's not technically required to, or at least the law is ambiguous as to whether or not she actually has to follow that advice as directed. And so what I found interesting about this is the way that British politics has addressed this. And the way that they address it is to basically ensure, well not ensure, but basically to go out of their way to not do anything politically that would bring this into question. Okay, Queen of England, don't mess this up. <laughs> but isn't it already messed up? Yes, it is. But don't mess it up more than it's messed up, okay? Well, it's an interesting norm to have in place because it basically just resolves the problem by not addressing it. And it requires everybody involved to just constantly be on their toes to avoid putting themselves or the queen in a position where they have to decide uh, whether the queen has to follow advice or not. And even now, you know, that continues to be the case, but it's become an issue because of lawsuits that were filed against the Johnson government regarding the proroguing of parliament. Uh, now, as you'll recall, proroguing the parliament involves just suspending parliament ahead of a scheduled queen's speech, which was scheduled by the Johnson government. And, uh, you know, to kind of recap a little bit what we talked about last week, uh, the government can schedule a Queen's speech, and as part of that, they can suspend Parliament for uh, a certain amount of time before the speech. And in this case, the Johnson government abused that norm, uh, well, broke that norm by uh, scheduling a Queen's speech at a particularly sensitive time, that being the time period leading up to the Brexit deadline at the end of October, and then suspending Parliament for an inordinately long period of time, about 23 days, when Really, the average is more like seven to ten days or so, something around there. And so that was an effective means for him to try to sideline Parliament. But then the question was, uh, well, the, the issue is that when the Johnson government went to the Queen of England uh, to ask her to prorogue Parliament, the issue is that he's being the Johnson government is being accused of not being entirely forthright about the actual their actual motives for asking for that proroguing. And so that raises the question then, what we were talking about, does the queen, well, more specifically, does the government have to be fully honest about its motives when it gives quote unquote advice to the queen? And so that kind of raises the question. Um, if the queen has discretion, as in, can the queen reject advice and do something else? Uh, if that's the case, then it doesn't really matter. The government doesn't have to be, uh, well, the government does have to be honest in that case. But if the queen has no discretion, then the government does not have to be honest about what its motives, motivations are. It can just send the queen a letter saying, hey, we want this, go do it. But to flesh that out a little bit, if the queen does have discretion, that means she needs good advice because she wants to do 
uh, either what's best for the country or just whatever she, whatever her motives are. She needs, uh, you know, honest advice from the government so that she can plan accordingly. So if she does have that discretion, then the government does technically have to be forthright or should be forthright. So because of this lawsuit over proroguing, there's this question that's arisen over the queen's actual discretion. And this, this breaks that other norm that I was talking about earlier, which is that political actors in Britain are supposed to go out of their way to avoid this sort of constitutional ambiguity about the queen's powers. And uh, being an unusual time, you know, that's sort of what the article I read <laughs> stated it as, you know, uh, in normal times, this would not be a problem, but these are not normal times. So it may be that this constitutional ambiguity is addressed indirectly uh, in this lawsuit. But I should hasten to point out that the lawsuit is not directly over the Queen's discretionary power. So uh, it may not be it may, it may not be resolved uh, as part of the case, but it does tie in indirectly. So the reason I bring all of this up, because you know it, it's not necessarily that substantive to the Brexit issue, but I want to bring it up as an example of political norms and the importance thereof. You know, if you do have a legal weakness in your constitutional system or your legal system, uh, or maybe it's just a weakness that's inherent to legal systems that can't be legislated away any way you slice it. In those cases, political norms are very useful tools by which to address those problems. Um, they're not fixed. They're not enforceable per se, generally. Uh, but when they're adhered to, they do kind of ease things, ease tensions and ease the process of governing. So this is another example of the breakdown of norms in Britain's political system. Um, it's not a total breakdown. I'm not making, I don't want to make out Britain to be some kind of, you know, failed state, but uh, governance in Britain has been suffering a bit due to the extreme tensions that have been generated by the whole Brexit issue. And this is one of the manifestations thereof. Also, yeah, just, political norms, norms can be a good tool as long as they abide by them, right? Because I think that's been one of the fun things with the executive office in the U.S. and how it's been flexing more and more power because the it doesn't have all the regulations and bumpers that it could have because presidents have behaved in a way that conform to the political norms, historically speaking. But you can break a norm easier than you can break a law. Oh, yeah. Yeah, much easier. Unfortunately, if you break a norm, people just scratch their heads and say, is there any way for us to stop this person? Nope. <laughs> nope. Sorry. No such luck. For those people maybe not familiar with the U.S. political system, uh, in order to pass a law in the Senate in the United States, it has to be passed with a two-thirds majority. I believe. And that is not a law. That is actually a norm in place in the Senate. It is technically a rule. That is to say that uh, it is a rule in the Senate that laws have to be passed by two-thirds, but there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that requires that. It's purely a procedural rule that has been agreed to and maintained in the Senate for the past 200-some years. And the reason that norm is in place is to ensure that 
bills that are passed are passed with consensus. Because obviously it's very difficult to pass, uh, pass anything with a two-thirds majority. But hypothetically, it would not be hard for that procedural rule to change. I mean, basically, you only need a majority vote, a majority vote in the Senate to change that procedural rule so that laws can be passed by majority, uh, just a pure majority rather than just a, rather than a two-thirds majority. So that's, a, that's an important norm in the U.S. political system. Again, it's not in the Constitution, but it serves to encourage an environment of consensus making, consensus building, by requiring political actors in the Senate uh, to have a lot of votes, a large proportion of the Senate on board with a given law before it'll pass it. And the fact that that norm has survived so long is a testament uh, to the strength of democratic norms in the United States. It's starting to fray a little bit because there are some things, uh, there are some votes in the U.S. Senate for which that rule has been waived now. You know, it used to be required for uh, Supreme Court nominees and whatnot in certain other areas, but uh, eventually those were removed. That is to say that rule was waived, so now it is just a majority vote for some of those things. And that just indicates the degree of tension in the political and the U.S. political culture right now. But you know, anyway, without getting into that, that's again, that's an example of an important political norm. And uh, in so much as it's facilitated actual consensus building, it illustrates how important norms can be to facilitating uh, liberal democratic governance. Democratic governance just means majoritarian. Uh, but liberal democratic governance means governing according to a constitution in order, in other words, doing certain, in other words, not doing certain things, even if they have majority support. Uh, in deference to minorities and in deference to building legitima the legitimacy of the state. Anyway, we can go on to the last update and then I'll get into questions. I'm sure they're backing up by now. Uh, so have you, I'll ask you, Nero, have you heard about this? There was an attack on an oil processing facility in Saudi Arabia today. Or yesterday, mm. maybe. No, I didn't hear about this. Well, Who this is the it? big news. What did they want? Sorry, what? Who did it? What did they want? And what are we going to do? <laughs> well, those are the big ones. The big questions, that is to say. Uh, so the Houthi rebels in Yemen took credit for the attack. And they say they did it with drones, and uh, about 10 drones, they say. It's not clear if they were military-grade drones or just off-the-shelf retail drones. But, quote-unquote, drones were used by the Houthi rebels to attack oil production facilities uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they hit some facilities in oil field, but the big one they hit was the uh, Ab... I can't even pronounce it, the Abkaik uh, oil processing plant. And that was critical because uh, by damaging that plant, among other facilities, altogether, Saudi oil production may have been halved for the near to medium term. And given how important Saudi oil production is to overall global oil supplies, it could be that there's a pretty significant jump in price pending. Now, the Saudi government has said that they're going to tap their oil reserve to try to prevent that from happening. And it may be that by the time uh, the oil reserve starts to run out, they'll have the uh, facilities in question back up and running. So it may be that the price impact is not that big. So overall, this is not necessarily an economic catastrophe. Uh, 
but it is a it is significant in a military sense. This is uh, one of the most successful and most impactful drone attacks by a non-state actor uh, in history. In fact, I think it's pr probably fair to say it's the most successful and most impactful drone attack by a non-state actor. Uh, it's not entirely unprecedented. The Houthi rebels have been using drones to attack facilities for the in Saudi Arabia for the past month or two. They attacked a light natural gas facility, a liquefied natural gas facility, rather, as well as some other oil facilities. But none of the attacks really uh, were that impactful uh, until now. So this could be a seminal moment in the history of warfare when you finally, you know, after much discussion about it potentially happening over the past couple decades, you finally see a non-state actor really using uh, technology, in this case drones, to even the playing field between themselves and a state actor. So that's a pretty significant milestone there. It's been expected to happen for a while, but this is the this is the first significant manifestation of that, at least that I can remember off the top of my head here. So a historical moment. Battlebots. Huh? Battlebots. Battlebots, yeah. Yeah, the old... Uh, a bit, a bit more serious than the old uh, BattleBots TV show, but the same spirit, perhaps. Well, it's an interesting development if you think about the trend of conflicts being less and less reliant on human people laying down their lives for a cause. So you have like weapons of mass destruction as one thing where it is a bomb that has so much destructive power that that is a choice instead of sending like a million people to go fight for a cause. And then this is, I think there are pilots who can control drones and whatnot to accomplish objectives that prevents them from having to put themselves in the line of fire. And then are we going to have drones fighting each other? What do you do about drones? Do you know the, the technical tactical side of that? Well, I mean, you can treat the larger ones as just aircraft. So you can use traditional air defenses against them. Uh, but when you're dealing with smaller drones, uh, you know, it may well be that they just use small retail drones. That's a whole other ballgame, you know, and the technology on that is more nascent. I think some of the uh, law enforcement institutions around the world that have kind of grappled with this problem have uh, generally taken more of a jamming approach. They try to utilize technology to jam the signal uh, from the drone to the operator so that they can't pilot it. Uh, so I think that's more the direction they'll probably take in future as far, to, as, far as drone defense. But uh, neither traditional methods nor jamming are going to deal with the uh, bigger potential future problem, the inevitable future problem, which is drone swarms. Uh, you can build a whole shit ton of small, cheap drones and just unleash them on a target all at once and by doing so most likely overwhelm their defenses. So jamming could help with that, but then that gets into the realm of uh, counter jamming and also autonomy. Uh, autonomous drone technology is something that's still kind of, it's not necessarily early stages, but it's still early going. But eventually there will be autonomous drones such that you won't need an operator to operate the drone. You can just pick a target for it and then it'll use artificial intelligence uh, to fly by itself to attack that target. Things so, said immediately preceding a robot apocalypse. <laughs> well, possibly, depending on the intentions of the uh, owners of the drones in question. But uh, certainly that's going to be a problem. Uh, 
I don't know that there's any... I haven't been following military tech too closely you know, over the past few years. Well, even more than that. Uh, but as far as I know, that there, there's not any technology in the process of being developed. There might be some on the drawing board, but in principle, but I don't know of any that's in the pipeline right now that's dedicated to defeating drone swarms of any sort. But I'm sure somebody's trying. <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear about it sooner or later. Just make transformers to defend against the drones. There you go. So, as far as this drone strike in Saudi Arabia, it's not really clear what the consequences are going to be. It's not clear how involved the Iranians are. The Iranians have been accused of giving material support to the Houthis, so it may be that they got the drones from Iran, in which case Iran is culpable to some degree. Uh, that could bolster U.S. arguments that uh, Iran is a hostile state and that other countries need to do more to crack down on them, uh, or potentially even justify U.S. retaliation depending on how belligerent the U.S. government is feeling about it. Uh, maybe they just use sanctions to retaliate, but there could be some military retaliation. I'm skeptical they will, but hypothetically that is a potential option on the table. Uh, a more limited response might focus just on the Houthis. So instead of hitting the Iranians directly, they may just go specifically after the Houthis. You know, maybe particularly hard to send a message. So, well, it's that the U.S. government came out today, I think, and said that it blames Iran specifically. And there was even some uh, suggestion that maybe the Iranians had used Iranian cruise missiles to hit the oil facilities in question, and that it actually wasn't Houthi-operated drones at all. Uh Probably that, not. I think they're... Sorry, go ahead. That to me sounds like what you mentioned earlier about the hawkish stance toward Iran in general. So it seems like this could be a scenario where you could use that as an excuse to take an even more bold approach. Mm -hmm. Well, there's been no shortage of such excuses over the past few months. You know, like we were talking about, there's been an escalating series of uh, Iranian provocations in the Middle East that I suspect is just part of an overarching strategy to apply pressure to the U.S. to try to get them to return to the nuclear deal that was agreed under the Obama administration, or at least enter some kind of substantive negotiation that could result in a relaxation of sanctions. So, despite the fact that those provocations have been happening for the past month, the U.S. government has not responded to them with violence. And in fact, Josh Bolton, John Bolton, you remember him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was, uh, I don't want to say fired, but he resigned as advisor to Donald Trump. So he's no longer a part of the Trump administration. You can't fire me, I quit. Well, that's actually kind of the debate that was had over it. Uh, he says he resigned, Trump kind of infers, implies that he fired him. But, <laughs> but regardless, uh, it's suspected that Bolton ended up walking because of tensions over uh, his preferences vis-a-vis -vis Iran. You know, he wanted uh, the United States to utilize airstrikes in response to the shooting down of U.S. drone by the Iranians, and the Trump administration, of course, did not do that. And it may be that Trump himself is not that gung-ho, or at least not as gung-ho as John Bolton is, uh, as far as imposing uh, U.S. preferences in the region. 
Well, that kind of highlights the differences between posturing and actually moving pieces on the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, like what we talked about before, uh, the U.S. and Iran don't really want a war with each other, but they do have core interests that they're pursuing strongly right now. You know, the U.S. really doesn't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. And uh, Iran really wants to have security in the region, either with nuclear weapons or by mitigating U.S. influence in the region. And uh, with war off the table, both Iran and the United States are having to resort to very strong signaling, sometimes forceful violent signaling, but still just signaling. Um, there's a danger that it could spiral into a conflict if there's tit-for-tat retaliations, but at this point it looks like that's relatively unlikely. Both players are kind of sticking to... Uh, not necessarily non-confrontational or even non-violent, but they're sticking to strategies that leave lots of room for maneuver and interpretation. Nobody's killing each other just yet. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they're just very disappointed in the other side. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to get violent with you. I'm just disappointed, and I disagree with everything that you do. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a couple of notes here on this. How the U.S. response could set an important precedent, given that this is, uh, again, if I'm remembering correctly, a potentially historical moment, how the U.S. response to this could set a precedent for how countries deal with drone attacks by non-state actors that have support from a third-party country. So if the U.S. doesn't respond strong enough, it could be that other countries are emboldened uh, to use this method to arm proxy forces in other countries with drones that are then used uh, to inflict disproportionate damage uh, relative to what non-state actors have been historically capable of. So that's definitely undesirable. But on the other hand, if the United States responds too strongly, then there's the risk of conflict, basically. So getting the right getting the response right is going to be important. Uh, we'll see how that goes. So let's see, kind of drones used is still unknown. Could have been small retail drones or large. If it was retail drones, then I'm skeptical that the Iranians were really that involved because you can get retail drones pretty easily. If they were military-grade drones, though, then I'd say that makes Iranian involvement pretty obvious. So in that case, they're a lot more culpable, and the U.S. government is probably going to take a much harder line on them. So that's uh, that's another note. I don't think details on that kind of been released yet, but that's something to watch for. So as far as uh, Iranian motives, in so much as the Iranians were involved, there's the question of why they would be motivated to do this, uh, to facilitate a, an attack of this scale. So it could be that they were testing U.S. foreign policy out after the departure of Bolton. They may have perceived some softening in U.S. preferences. And so this could be just a kind of a test, basically, to see how, how, the, how belligerent the Trump administration is without Bolton as opposed to with him. Uh, another possibility here is that it's actually not a response to the U.S. per se. Uh, and the nuclear deal, it could be more of a response to escalating Israeli airstrikes in Syria and Iraq, which we've talked about. We talked a little bit about last week. The Israelis have, have been, for the past few years, uh, been striking 
Iranian military targets in Syria and more recently Iraq. Um, they're not explicitly Iranian troops, but they are militias aligned with Iran and that receive support from Iran. Uh, generally, they've been hitting weapons depots. The Israelis are concerned about a potential buildup of missiles in Lebanon and Syria uh, that could be fired at Israel uh, in mass, such that they overwhelmed Israel's anti-missile defenses. So they're concerned about that, as well as general concern with uh, an Iranian military presence on their uh, in a neighboring country. So they've been pushing pretty hard, violently so, uh, to try to minimize the presence of uh, Iranian proxies in Syria, uh, close to close to Israel, as well as trying to disrupt as much as possible the transfer of missiles from Iran to their proxies in Syria. So that effort has been going on for a while, but it's been escalating quickly over the past few months. And it may be that this attack is uh, more a response to that. So basically, the region's issues are one big picture. If you're Iran, uh, getting attacked by Israeli aircraft uh, and having the sanctions placed on you by the United States, all of that is kind of one big picture, since you know the Iranian government sees the Israelis and the U.S. as attached at the hip. So it may be that they see the Israeli pressure as being a, an extension of American foreign policy. And that, in that sense, it may be that they're retaliating uh, on that count to try to get the U.S. to back, to get Israel to back off of the airstrikes. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work any better than any of the other stuff the Iranians have been trying. You know, they tried seizing oil tankers. That didn't go anywhere. Uh, they tried ramping up their missile operations in Syria. That's what you know sparked the Israeli airstrikes in the first place. So that's not working. Uh, maybe they figure attacking uh, Saudi Arabia might accomplish something, but the Saudis are just going to ask the U.S. for protection, and the U.S. will send probably Patriot missile systems to Saudi Arabia, as well as some destroyers equipped with Aegis. And that'll probably be enough of a signal to kind of assuage fears in Saudi Arabia. So Iran seems to be trying to drive wedges between allies and to try to force issues, but uh, none of it's working thus far. They're not going to stop trying, because like we talked about before when we covered this, the Iranians are desperate. You know, the Iranian government tried to get a nuclear deal, but then the U.S. backed out of it. So that was not able, you know, they've had sanctions placed on them for a very long time now, even before the nuclear deal was signed. So once the nuclear deal was settled and agreed to, uh, that relaxed sanctions, but then sanctions came back under Trump, and so now they're really feeling the pressure. And they need to do something to uh, change the status quo, but the U.S. is very reluctant to do that, and so that leaves the Iranian government with two choices, which one is to just give in to all of the U.S.'s demands, that's not an acceptable outcome for Iran's conservatives, especially the nationalists uh, in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. So that option is not really on the table, at least not yet. Uh, the other option is to just try to find ever more risky, high-risk, high-reward options that can be gambled on in order to try to put, apply pressure against the U.S. and its allies in the Middle East. And that's led to a lot of creative thinking on the part of the Iranian government as far as what it can do to apply pressure. And it's done a lot of little things, you know, like I said, oil tankers, missiles, and now this drone attack. 
potentially, if the Iranians were involved. But uh, all of it is just sort of desperation, Hail Mary plays. There's not, uh, there's not a lot of necessarily conspiratory, conspiracy behind these actions. I don't think Iran is just plotting to take over the Middle East and this is the first salvos. More like they're just desperately trying to get the U.S. to come to the table and give some concessions, and they're kind of pulling a Russia and trying to make trouble as much as they can to generate negotiating leverage. I did read a fun note in the chat regarding the use of drones. There was an eagle that took out a drone at some point, so people have started training raptors to take out camera drones, which is pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, they are the apex predators of the skies. Drones are going to have to figure out how to deal with eagles and falcons because they're the boss. Tiny guns. Just tiny guns, guns versus angry talons? Dude, I'm cheering for the eagles. Well, depending on the tiny guns in question, maybe that's a good bet. We'll yeah, see. until you train the eagles to shoot tiny guns. <laughs> there you go. Checkmate, robots. Well, one thing that the Japanese police do, uh, they found out that organized criminals were using drones to deliver uh, contraband, you know, illicit goods. And so the Japanese police force actually started, they bought their own drones and they equipped them with nets. And so they actually started flying them to intercept these uh, drones that they identified as being criminal in nature. Don't ask me how they did that. Uh, but somehow they figured out which drones uh, were carrying contraband, or at least were targeting drones in areas where they shouldn't have been flying, and they would use these drones, police-operated drones with nets, to try to capture them. So that's another possible defense against retail drone attacks. You know, you could just have uh, your own drones with nets uh, to try to capture them, or at least knock them off course, or what have you, or force them to crash. Let's see. So that's it for updates. Then we can jump into the questions. I think we've got, what, 45 minutes? Mm-hmm. Sound about right to you? Yep. Okay. So let's see. We haven't done questions. Well, we haven't done too many questions in a while. Let's see. I think we covered those last time. Okay. So first question, the astronomical rise of Space Force, all caps, a sign of re return of a Wolfowitz Doctrine style of foreign policy. I don't think that's the takeaway there. You know, Space Force kind of sounds goofy and it's been sort of a Trump vanity project. It seems like a Trump vanity project the way he talks about it sometimes. Space Force. Space Force. But actually, there's kind of been a trend towards that for a while. Um, you know, space has been an area of growing concern for U.S. military planners because so many other rivals have been uh, developing technology to try to disrupt the U.S. advantage in space. You know, a lot of uh, the U.S. military has a lot of assets in space that facilitate uh, communications, to put it mildly, but also just C4 ISR generally, you know, command and control, communications, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. And I think computers is in there somewhere. So that's an intelligence advantage that is proffered by 
military assets in space is a great force multiplier for the U.S. military. And uh, rival powers know that and are going out of their way to develop technologies that will be able to disrupt it, either with direct kinetic action, as in shooting down drones, shooting down uh, satellites or blowing them up, uh, or with uh, jamming of one sort or another. So given that that's happening, it kind of behooves the U.S. military to focus more attention and resources on countermeasures, or at least fortifying satellites so that they're more difficult to disrupt. So that trend has been playing out for a while, so it makes sense now that there would be uh, an agency that would be dedicated to protecting assets from uh, potential aggressors. So I think it's more of a defensive move rather than a return to a uh, sort of belligerent Wolfowitz doctrine of foreign policy, as you describe it. I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think that's the takeaway there. So let's see, hopefully, if I ever answer a question that's not to the question or satisfaction, please feel free to ask again and elaborate. I'm kind of dumb, so sometimes sometimes I misread questions or, you know, I miss key aspects. So if that, if that happens, feel free to ask again and I'll, I'll be happy to return to it. <clears throat> so let's see, could you talk broad, next question, could you talk broadly about the pros and cons of government dispension like the shutdown in the U.S. or the current temporary dispension of U.K. Parliament. I'm going to infer you mean suspension where it says dispension here. Maybe I just don't know what dispension means. But uh, what are the pros and cons of suspensions like the shutdown of the U.S. or the current uh, dispute in the U.K.? I don't know that there's a lot of pros, really, because generally that only happens when there's some major tension in politics that causes a breakdown in the traditional methods of resolving problems. So that's, that's generally the case. So I would, it's hard to come up with pros in that car in that vein. The cons are obvious. I mean, if you shut down the government, uh, then you just, you're just losing any and all, well, assuming it's a total shut it down, then you're losing useful uh, administrative agencies that perform useful roles in society. Uh, so you lose that and that would be the principal con there. In a case like the UK where the civil service is more independent and uh, doesn't have to worry about that as much, uh, having parliament be prorogued, which again is different than a government should. Let me actually, that's worth fleshing out a little bit. In the United States, um, the civil service and the executive branch writ large is separate from the legislature. So the legislature is filled with representatives who are elected by constituents in different districts all over the United States. Uh, the president, which is the head of the executive branch, is himself elected directly by the U.S. public. And uh, he, you know, very, to varying degrees, appoints officials. But the civil service is loyal to him. Well, maybe loyal is not the right word, but works for the president is a, and is under his direct order. In the UK, it works differently. The legislature and the executive branch are much more blended in the UK. So in the UK, legislators are elected you know, by locals and districts. Uh, but when a party has a majority uh, in the legislature, they'll form a government themselves that is filled out by legislators. So the prime minister of the UK and the different cabinet ministers are generally themselves ministers of parliament, that is to say legislators. 
generally the ones who are more powerful and influential within their party. So that's, uh, that's worth pointing out here. When the U.S. government has a shutdown, that means that the civil service under the U.S. president uh, is shutting down, but it does not mean that Congress is shutting down. Congress continues its normal duties. Uh, in the U.K., in contrast, uh, with the proroguing of parliament, um, parliament is gone, so to speak. Uh, that impacts indirectly the executive branch because uh, ministers of parliament are part of parliament. But the, the guys who run the executive branch aren't losing their power. Uh, you know, the executive branch will continue to function even without parliament in place. So uh, I'm, I'm not doing a great job of this explanation, but that's, uh, it's, it's two different, it's two very different things, basically. In the UK, it's shutting down the legislature. That's what proroguing is, and that's very different than a government shutdown in the US where the administrative uh, functions of the state are being shut down, but not the legislature. So now that I've <laughs> belabored that a little bit, uh, the original question here, pros and cons, <clears throat> I mean, if you want to put them together in a single category of just general government dysfunction where some branch or the other of the government is shutting down for some reason, the con is that you're losing the uh, services that were being provided by that branch of government, whatever it may be. Um, <clears throat> so the, the pro, I'm going to try to think of one here because you asked for one. Um, the only pro I could really think of is that it's a safety valve. You know, if tensions are running so high in a country's politics that no agreement can be made such that politicians would rather shut down a government in some fashion, uh, that could alleviate some of the pressure and facilitate some kind of traction on a given issue. If you can't agree to resolve an issue through the normal fashion, through consensus, and uh, there's a risk that the issue just becomes intractable and drags out and destroys the government's ability to deal with and address other problems. So in that case, maybe it's better just to do something, just to deal with it one way or the other. And so in that sense, it may be that shutting down the government is a useful way to try to signal strongly that you demand that a problem be resolved in a particular way, or in the British case, uh, a way to try to force the issue by putting the authority to settle it in the hands of the executive branch. Yeah, I'm kind of struggling here because, again, a U.S. government shutdown is very different than proroguing, so I'm trying to find things they have in common, basically, and answering the question based on that. And I'm not, I don't think I've really done it, but that's, that's kind of the best I can do under the circumstances. One I don't of the think... annoying things about a U.S. shutdown, uh, U.S. government shutdown that I've heard from some people who work in government is most branches have to trudge along and oftentimes they're shouldering more burden than they would normally because certain people don't have to go into work but still get paid. Yeah. So it's a bit of a mess. I think that's probably why you're struggling to think of a pro for it. Yeah, it's... it's well, I mean, the whole reason... Uh political actors use government shutdowns in the U.S. is specifically because they're disruptive and because they want to use that disruption as leverage in negotiations in Congress. So it's not really meant to have a pro. It's meant to be pretty much all con, like you say. 
So let's see, that's the best I can do there. Next question, or 2B, I guess, next part of this question. What's the public perception of such a suspension? I'm, again, I'm assuming dispension is supposed to be suspension here. What's the public perception of such a suspension? Does it weaken the overall trust in government or just the people that, quote unquote, made it happen? Um, it really depends on context. You know, in the U.S., historically, the broader public, even conservatives, do not really like government shutdowns. So it doesn't destroy trust in government, per se, but it does undermine trust in whichever political party is being blamed for it. So that's more of a political, well, I mean, it's all political, but uh, it has more to do with percep perceptions of political parties rather than perceptions of the government, per se. So, quote-unquote, the people who made it happen, I guess, would be the people who were principally having their perceptions impacted there. I think it's usually people in the legislature as well, because sometimes it's not one particular party, or at least that's not what it seems like. It's that consensus cannot be reached, and that's why the shutdown happens. Like, the budget, I think, is one that resulted in a shutdown recently. If they can't agree, then it's sort of like both sides are to blame to an extent. Mm -hmm. or at least that's the public perception. So if it's a government shutdown, uh, that branch of the government is more likely to be blamed than, say, the judiciary or something like that, or other government workers. The government is a pretty big entity at this point, whether you like it or not. Unfortunately so, for some people, according to some people's perspectives. But yeah, that uh, people will blame Congress in the U.S. just sort of categorically in a lot of cases. But I, I mentioned the partisan aspect because, uh, well, the Republican Party did it in 95, I think, and then they did it, I think, twice uh, over the past five, ten years or so. And I think in all of those cases, the broader public was pretty skeptical and blamed them specifically. I'm not, there was also people who blamed Congress, but in general... Uh, the Republican Party made out worse from that. And as a result, the Republican Party is generally pretty averse to government shutdowns. Generally, it's right. And, you know, in the case of uh, 95, it was um, the contract for America. Newt Gingrich and some of his uh, people came into office uh, on a campaign of promising to cut government services and whatnot. So there was a lot of ideological fervor at that time. Uh, more recently... Uh, one of the incidences happened because of the Tea Party. Tea Party Republicans, of course, were very conservative. And again, ideological considerations were kind of more important. I think it's important to point out in that case that the Republican Party leadership actually was against a shutdown, but the Tea Party wing of the party basically forced their hand such that they didn't really have a choice. Uh, and then, of course, there's the most recent incidents, which was basically just Trump being Trump. I don't know how much uh, congressional Republicans really, how much of a role the congressional Republicans really had to play in that case. But in all of those cases, in general, the public perception was pretty negative of Congress, but also relatively more negative towards the Republican Party as far as assigning blame uh, for the problem, for the shutdown. So short answer, people don't blame the government so much as they blame the people who they perceive as having made it happen, whether that be a party or an individual.
in the United States. I should point that out. I'm talking about U.S. politics. Maybe it works different in other countries. Other countries don't really have this happen as much, I don't think. Um, in other countries, when they have it happen, it comes in the form of a, an inability to form a government. I think Belgium has the has or had the world record for longest time without a government because the uh, the Flemish political party couldn't reach an agreement with the uh, Walloon political party. And so they were just sort of at odds for something like almost a year, maybe longer. So let's see, next question was, what do you say we're at a tipping point of public distrust in political institution and the democratic process, or is it just the usual up and down? Well, I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, uh, that's hard to gauge. It's hard to know where you're at when you're in the middle of the storm. You know, uh, it's easier, to, I mean, speaking in the grand sweep of history, it's easier to understand historical phenomena in hindsight than when you're actually experiencing them. Because with the benefit of hindsight, you can see the different factors at play and what's going on. But when you're actually living through it, you just don't have all the information. And so that being the case, it's really hard to tell whether we're at a tipping point now or not. Really, whether or not it's a tipping point is something that we're going to look at and judge in retrospect because that's about the only way that we'll have enough information to really make a judgment like that. Isn't that just the annoying part of living in current years? So you don't have a nice big data set of stuff to yeah. reference a lot of the time because you have new technologies, new situations. That was a really fun theme to see unfold whenever you're studying a lot of World War II combat scenarios because you have new weapons, new scales of warfare that are being conducted that have never been conducted before so a lot of stuff is just you're basically doing a college try at it yeah. it's like well we have this new thing uh has this been thoroughly tested no there isn't really an ethically ethical way to thoroughly test this outside of <laughs> military so well we're going for it well, good luck but yeah there's a if i had to make a judgment then i'd don't think we're at a tipping point per se. I think we're more just going through, uh, I think there is a cyclical nature to it, but I also think that it's a little bit unusual. I mean, we've talked before at length, I've, I've droned on at length about a uh, structural economic change and how that's changing everything that it's, that's sort of percolating throughout society. There are political ramifications economic ramifications, social ramifications, and all of this social churn on all these different levels is just creating unprecedented waves and tensions uh, that traditional political systems are having difficulty navigating. So that's unprecedented because we have an unprecedented degree of economic change happening uh, and continues to happen. You know, it's, it hasn't stopped. That's... Uh, <clears throat> That is an important factor there, in so much as it means that we're in a black swan event. You know, you could argue that we're in a black swan event. So it, this is unusually disruptive. But I also think that there is a cyclical nature to it, in so much as that we've seen economic changes before that caused major political disruptions. And the result was not catastrophic collapse 
Um, well, sometimes it was catastrophic political collapse, but in the cases when it was not political catast catastrophic political collapse, uh, the result was political realignment. So different political groups and affiliations and people with different political preferences uh, in a normal political system, they, align, they make alliances together and form factions. Uh, but eventually, if there's enough disruption in society, the basis for those alliances withers away. Some of those groups disappear entirely. Some get more important. Some of their interests are defined differently, depending on the nature of change. And the result is that uh, there's a kind of a shuffling of alliance partners. And uh, it, it's very disruptive while it happens. Uh, but eventually, a new equilibrium is reached and things kind of settle down. So it may be that we're just in the disruptive phase of that super cycle. You know, we had a long period of stability in the 90s and aughts, and now in the teens, in the 20 teens, we're having a period that's extremely, that's sort of, a, well, a lot of the factors of disruption have been at play for a while, but we've reached a tipping point in so much as those factors have reached a point where political actors are no longer willing to accept the status quo, and there is a desire for change, but nobody really knows what kind of change they want or how to implement the kinds of changes that would be necessary to achieve given objectives. We're in a period of political uncertainty. People don't, what, people don't want what we've had, but they don't know what they want. And so we're just sort of stuck in this sort of discovery period where people are discovering what kind of policies and solutions that they want and are kind of testing them out. That's a possibility. I don't know. <laughs> when do you want it? As soon as possible. <laughs> Well, All right, let's govern. That is pretty much what we have. But that's just, uh, that's again, speculation on my part. That's, um, that, that's just a possibility. You know, maybe this is a tipping point. You know, maybe the, all the technological changes and the way they've impacted society uh, is going to be in a way that facilitates permanent mistrust. That, you know, maybe in the future with the technology we have uh, and the way we interact in society is such that you just can't have trust in government. And so maybe that facilitates a new kind of metagame, uh, a whole new way of organizing a society. Uh, or on the other hand, you know, maybe it's nothing at all. Maybe, <laughs> maybe this is just an unusually disruptive period because of these, you know, all these changes happening, but maybe relatively soon we reach a new equilibrium in which uh, everything kind of goes back to something resembling normalcy. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it's anybody's guess. It's, it's, you kind of have to make a long-term prediction to guess, and long-term predictions are pretty much the worst. <laughs> the worst and least accurate. But it's just too hard to judge right now. Just email Ray Kurzweil. He'll tell you what's going to happen in 15 years. <laughs> He'll give you a specific calendar date as well, which is the best. Got to plan ahead. Let's see. Next question. Do you have, and then I clicked a thing. Hang on. No, not that. Nope, not that either. Stand by. There it is. All right. <laughs> Back in the right channel. Went on a brief adventure there. Okay. Do you have any insight on the recent political developments in Italy, specifically regarding the new government that just formed? Yes. 
and I shared them all last week. <laughs> we talked. I think yeah, we talked about Italy last week, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I. Well, I reviewed it. I put it like that. I don't know that I had insight per se, but I did go over it. Uh, yeah, I mean. To briefly recap, I think it was just the inevitable outcome there, because the two populist parties that had been in coalition were ideologically different, and the only thing they could agree on was that they wanted to kind of tear the system down and do something different. Uh, how exactly to do that and what exactly they wanted to do, they didn't really discuss entirely. And so when they were all talking about just immigration, you know, both populist parties were against that. And wanted to take a harder line on immigration you know that was low-hanging fruit uh, but once it actually came to deciding all right what kind of you know how do we want to spend the government's money what kind of budget projects do we want to do what are our actual priorities here they differed on those and eventually uh, that became those differences became too great and the coalition broke apart um, what was surprising was that uh, salvini ended up out of government Salvini, basically the genesis of this, you know, uh, was that one of the coalition partners was polling much better. And that was the one led by Salvini. And he was the one who tried to push for a new election because he thought that maybe he could form a government without uh, the other populist party. And so that was actually, a the whole thing was a power play by him. And it just happened to end with him on the outside looking in. It totally blew up in his face. Uh, he wanted to form a right-wing government with his party in the lead, but instead, when he broke with the coalition, his coalition partner formed a new coalition with a center-left political party. And uh, in doing so, de facto denied him the option of calling a new election. I think really what it came down to was that the president was resisting forming a new election until there was a new budget in place. And so that kind of bought time. But regardless, the new center-left government took power and Salvini is now in the opposition instead of being in government. So that was a surprise twist there. But other than that, um, no, I don't really have a lot to add beyond that. I don't know that I have really like significant insight to add, per se. Salvini taking some notes here. Okay, next question. A recent report by the UN confirms that the government in Nicaragua is committing human rights violations. Can you go over what is going on in Nicaragua right now? Hmm. Let me think here. It's been a while since I've read about Nicaragua. So, Nicaragua for a long time, in the mid-late, well, mid-20th century, was governed by a family called the Somozas. And they owned everything in Nicaragua. He had been a captain in the uh, National Guard, I think, or whatever their equivalent was. And uh, he staged a de facto coup and seized power and just took over all of everything in Nicaragua that was worth owning his family bought or forced uh, people to sell to them. And so they, they headed a very authoritarian political system. It wasn't totalitarian. It wasn't like Soviet Russia. Uh, but opportunities for democratic representation and free speech were limited, shall we say. So the result of that was a rebellion. It is not unusual in Central America. 
And uh, the rebellion was led by people who were called Sandinistas. This would have been roughly the 1970s. Now, the Sandinistas were led by a guy named, I think his name was Daniel? Well, his last name was Ortega, whatever his first name was. I don't quite remember. But Ortega led the Sandinistas, and eventually the Sandinistas were able to successfully overthrow the Somoza government. I think that would have been about 1979. Now, the Sandinistas were leftists, for the most part, and Ortega was a leftist. And so they did not become a Soviet satellite state. It's not like they became another Cuba, but they were antagonistic towards the United States. And that was enough for the United States to be concerned. You know, they were afraid that maybe Ortega would pull a Castro. Castro was not associated with communists for a long time. The United States government saw Castro as a nationalist, first and foremost. And so the U.S. government was caught off guard a bit when Castro declared his affiliation with the communists and that he would set up a communist government that was allied with the Soviet Union. So after that, there was a real paranoia in U.S. government and U.S. intelligence agencies about nationalist revolutionaries in Latin America. There was a feeling that any one of them could turn out to be a secret communist and uh, take over their government and uh, flip them over to the Soviet bloc. So similar factors at play here, and the United States government in turn decided that they were sufficient, they were uh, sufficient a threat to warrant the CIA uh, setting up revolutionaries, funding revolutionaries against the Sandinista government, uh, sparking a new civil war, or m maybe more accurately, a new phase of the civil war. Uh, so it went from Sandinistas fighting the Somoza family to Sandinistas fighting against what were called Contras, uh, Contra rebels in Nicaragua, people who, for various reasons, did not like the Sandinista government. In some cases, it was disgruntled leftists who thought the Sandinistas were too authoritarian. Uh, in other cases, it was basically just mercenaries, people being paid by the CIA to fight. So kind of a mixed bag. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, a disproportionate share of the Contra rebels were uh, mosquito people. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Not mosquito as in the bug, but the eastern coast of Nicaragua, most of the eastern coast of Nicaragua, used to be a territory called the Mosquito Coast. And the Mosquito was actually the name of the ethnic group that lived, the ethnic group of Native Americans who lived there. I must be mispronouncing it. I'm just, I'm not sure what the correct way is. But it, it sounds similar to Mosquito, like the bug. So anyway, uh, that group and territory has traditionally been ignored by the central government in Nicaragua. And so when the Sandinistas took power and started trying to exert more government authority there, uh, a lot of the locals actually resented it because they preferred their traditional autonomy. You know, they, they liked it better when they got to do things on their own way, uh, do things their own way without government interference. And so they ended up being a center of resistance to the Sandinista governments. There was also an ethnic dimension to the conflict, you could say. So anyway, the Civil War lasted like 10 years, killed a lot of people. It was very ugly. Eventually, there was a peace deal in the, I want to say the early 90s, and uh, eventually there were elections, and if I remember correctly, Ortega lost that election. Uh, or maybe he won it. I'm not sure. I want to say the conservatives won that election, and that Ortega lost it. And so Ortega was out of power for a while in the, the newly democratized Nicaragua. 
And so he changed his political platform from being a leftist one to being a left populist one. Uh, so instead of being just pure leftist, you know, government redistribution and uh, socially liberal, he shifted his stance to be more socially conservative while retaining the economic liberal, well, not liberal per se, but uh, the leftist economic policies were matched with a socially conservative platform. That was the shift Ortega made. And so he run on that platform and he ran rather on that platform and won. And he's basically been in power ever since. I think something like, what, 10, 15 years? Something in that range. But he's associated with the Chavistas in the sense that he's sort of a leftist politician who built a strong centralized government that, has, that is relatively intrusive and has lots of economic regulate, lots of economic interventions, you know, redistribution and whatnot. But it's not an entirely fair comparison because the Chavistas are not necessarily socially conservative like uh, Ortega is. Ortega is a real conservative populist, um, but he has residual economic leftist policies as part of his platform. <clears throat> so the perception in the United States government is that he's kind of a center-left chavista, uh, but in truth, he's kind of neither. He's neither uh, a completely conservative populist nor a left-wing chavista. He's just sort of something in between, you know, probably more just a Populist, maybe. A populist, self-interested politician. Maybe that would be the best characterization. So what happened recently over the past year or so is that there was a contested election, I think it was. Actually, I don't quite remember what the genesis was now that I think about it. Oh. Oh, excuse me. I want to say it was a contested election. And, uh, you know, the Nicaraguan government doesn't really allow fully fair or free and fair elections. So that led to protests. And there's enough people in Nicaragua who were upset with the Ortega government that those protests became pretty big national protests. Um, it wasn't just conservatives who didn't like the Sandinistas, or more accurately, Ortega. I don't think he still runs as a Sandinista. But... Uh, it wasn't just conservatives, it was also, once again, disgruntled leftists, people who didn't like the fact that Ortega had shifted away uh, from socially leftist positions to embrace conservative populism. That alienated a lot of people as well. So those national protests were met with force, um, not a violent crackdown per se, but you know a fair amount of police uh, brutality of one sort or another. And... Uh, also, the government leaned on um, non-state actors. You know, the political party that Ortega leads has cadres at the local level, sort of distributed throughout Nicaraguan society. And those were used to put pressure on individuals who became associated with the protests. Uh, civil society leaders of one sort or another who spoke out, etc. A lot of those people were targeted with intimidation, if not also violence, and uh, perhaps eventually even arrest in some cases for those people who were caught protesting, so to speak. <clears throat> so the result has been general political instability in Nicaragua. The government is trying to lean on its opponents uh, to try to get them to stop protesting so some sense of normalcy can return. Uh, but the protesters kind of sense that this uh, government is not going to give concessions unless it's really pressured, uh, if not by protest, if not, you know, by protesters, if not also internationally. So it's not a civil war, per se. it's not a civil war, but it is uh, 
political violence. Let's put it like that. You know, the government is using political violence to try to intimidate opponents, and opponents are trying to, as best they can, pressure the Sandinista government, well, not again, San, Ortega government, pressure the Ortega government uh, into implementing electoral reforms and dedicating itself to free and fair elections. So that's a rough summary. That's what I'm remembering anyway. I don't think the protests have ever really fully died down, but I do think that they're not as prominent now. It's more just a low-level intermittent protest, because I don't remember reading about it recently. It's been a couple months since I saw it in the news, so I don't know that it's necessarily a, a huge story right now. I would say Ortega would probably stay in power. Probably won't budge. There's not a lot... Excuse me. There's not a lot the protesters can do to really force his hand, and he still has a lot of... Uh, his government still has a lot of legitimacy in uh, Nicaragua. <clears throat> so it's kind of a stalemate. I don't think the protesters are going to be able to start a major a revolution or of some kind or anything. I don't think they'll be able to overthrow the government because I think the government has too much support amongst the population. But the protesters have enough support to uh, challenge the government. The government can't just ignore them. So they're really is most likely going to have to be some kind of negotiate, negotiated settlement there at some point. But I don't know where they are because I haven't been following it too closely. But yeah, that's, uh, that's Nicaragua in a nutshell. That's about as much as I can remember off the top of my head here. Nicaragua, as I recall, is the poorest country in Central America. Uh, but because the government is very centralized and very dedicated to redistribution, uh, there's not as much crime in Nicaragua as there are in other neighboring states. You know, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador have an immense crime problem. But Nicaragua doesn't, or at least not to the same degree. And that's impressive because, again, it's poorer than those other states. It has more poor people and more poverty. So they're doing something right down there. Let's see. So we've got, I'm guessing, about nine minutes here. Does that sound about right? Okay. Hmm. Going back to the divide. Okay, so I guess we'll answer this real quick, and then we can kind of wrap up. Since we're right here on the deadline. Uh Going back to the divide within U.S. society, how long do you think it will last? How long do you think it will take before it settles down? That's anybody's guess. It really is anybody's guess. It's just uh, too difficult to predict right now. I mean, you're already kind of seeing some of it settling down. Um, in terms of international trade, I remember reading uh, somewhere a year or two ago that uh, most of the disruption that's going to be caused by trade with China and the United States has already been caused. You know, the pace of factory relocations and, uh, you know, that sort of disruptive trade has slowed significantly. So it seems as though that's reached an equilibrium, which makes it kind of ironic that the Trump administration is uh, trying to break off those relations now, because that means that uh, there's going to be a whole new set of adjustments that have to be made possibly over a prolonged period of time that will 
be disruptive. So no, so no sooner do we finish the last phase of disruption in terms of trade that we're starting up a new one. Uh, but that's maybe it'll be short this time. The decoupling may be shorter than the coupling, but we'll see. But the point is that uh, the disruption from international trade was settling down. There is some evidence to that effect. And in so much as that was an instigating factor for political disruption, that kind of implies that maybe we're getting closer to a point when those passions will kind of die down a bit. So there's some evidence that uh, we're kind of nearing the end of this cycle of disruption in that sense. And I think also the fact that the populist movements have been relatively successful also helps. The fact that populists have gotten into power and failed to substantively address big problems, I think, uh, also takes the wind out of the sails of the most radical people, most radical political actors. You can actually see that in Greece really well. Uh, Greece elected Syriza, a far-left political party, to try to challenge the European Union and try to force them to give up austerity so that the Greek government could spend more money and try to recover its economy, um, well, try to generate growth in its economy. But uh, Syriza was not able to do that, <laughs> suffice to say. They failed pretty categorically. So right now, there's new election pending in Greece, and it's looking like the center-left party is going to win, or has won. It might have already had it. I don't quite remember. But uh, or, no, actually, it was a center-right party. Sorry. It was a center-right political party that uh, is set to win power, or has already won power in Greece. I'm sorry. I don't quite remember which of those it was. But that illustrates the return to orthodoxy there. You know, people, the electorate in Greece is tired of radical political parties and radical solutions, and it's coming back to sort of more orthodox mainstream political parties. Uh, part of that is not, well, some of that is not necessarily buy-in. It's not that they're, they don't want radical solutions. It's that they just don't think the radical parties are capable of delivering them, and they've become sufficiently disenchanted and disgruntled that they're willing to just go with the traditional party. If they're willing to vote at all, a lot of people aren't voting uh, to begin with as a result of that disenchantment, but those who are voting seem to be going more for the establishment option. So you could see that play out in other countries that have had uh, big upsurges in populism in their politics over the past few years, and maybe that eventually people get tired of the populists. You know, they, they get the... Uh, disruption of having populists in power, but not the uh, solutions that they want to the big problems they were elected to solve. And so people get disgruntled when things don't pan out the way they want. And uh, in some cases, they may just turn back to the establishment, and that could mark the beginning uh, of the end, or, well, the end, anyway, of the uh, populist period that we're in. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying relatively soon, maybe. <laughs> I like those summaries. My another favorite one that you do sometimes is you'll give a really nice, thorough, detailed answer that gives context, nuance, and all of this, and then you'll say, "Well, basically, that's a long-winded way of me saying I don't really know. We'll see." <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to be honest and forthright on here. You know, I don't want to lead people astray. I didn't give the usual disclaimer. I should give the disclaimer now, right at the end when it doesn't matter. But uh, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. And uh, if I say anything, you know, biased, stupid, or wrong, uh, I encourage Chad to correct me. Um, 
it's a little late to point it out today, but hopefully they were doing that in chat. You know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in most of these, most of these topics. And uh, if I'm wrong, I want to know more than anybody. So feedback is always appreciated. So let's see, that leaves a whopping three minutes there for you. Nice. Well, this was a good session. I think this is simpler to cut for production in terms of getting this onto the SoundCloud as one of the podcasts. We have been talking with the viewers and stuff, and it seems like a lot of people throughout their day, sometimes they don't have time to watch a Twitch stream or a YouTube video, but they do have time to listen to something. So this is a nice and easy way that you can get some Agent Smith fun time without the hassle of having video companion or gameplay or whatever. You just get the good stuff. Mm -hmm. So thanks to Cobra Venom for getting that podcast stuff online on the SoundCloud. This one should be up at some point in the near future. He's been really busy with travel for the past month or so, but things have settled down a little bit leading up to TwitchCon, which will be next weekend. So we won't have an episode next weekend. I will be in California, but we should be good the week after that, basically until uh, November. Gotcha. So it's good to be back in the swing of things. Thank you very much, Agent Smith, for your time and your knowledge and your discussion. Thank you, Fuzzy Cord, for handling questions this time. And thank you, all of the viewers, for your questions, your interest, and your support of this kind of content that we've branched out and done. And personally, I think this has been one of the best ideas that we've had with the stream. So thanks oh, again, Mr. Agent Smith. No, thank you. And, you know, thank Fuzzy Cord. Thank everyone in chat. Always great to be here. And, you know, much appreciated that I have this opportunity to do this. Very unusual, but much appreciated opportunity. So, yeah, thank you. How would you describe this podcast? Well, first of all, it's unusual, so buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Agent Smith, awesome job. We'll see you on the next one. Take care. Yep.